Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The reality we live in can be a very strange place. Most of the time, fact being stranger than fiction. How will we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything? Join me and a guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality, one topic at a time. This is Icarus the Reality with Shane Jones. What is up, Inquirers? And thank you for tuning in to another installment of Inquiries of Our Reality. As I'm sure most of you are aware, nothing in this reality is as it seems. And today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with someone who has done deep research into what is going on behind the scenes as far as the spiritual and cultural war that we are all currently involved in. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one, but it's a very long conversation, so I don't want to take away too much from it, but I got to do the front of house stuff real quick. So if you guys don't mind taking an extra five seconds to leave a rating for the show on Spotify, I would definitely appreciate it. And uh, if you guys are so kind as to take an extra 30 seconds to review the show on iTunes, I, of course, will read it aloud on the show and give you guys a shout out. And if you guys aren't already following the show on social media, I definitely recommend that you go and check that out if you want to get updates on anything going on with the show or uh, new episodes dropping, of course. And uh, if you guys want to check out the Telegram or the Discord, uh, we're building those up. Uh, They are now all the Open Minds Media Discord and Telegram. Uh, Made it a little bit easier. Just try to combine all the shows into one place since all you guys are all part of kind of the same community. Uh, The Telegram, uh, not that one's starting to build up a little bit, but the main focal point, of course, is the Discord. That's where we're putting all of our uh, efforts, and we're trying to restructure it and hopefully get that popping off. Uh, there's been more and more people popping into the group, so uh, it'd be really cool if you guys don't mind popping in there so I can actually put some faces to the names and actually be able to talk to some of you guys, because I see all you guys out there. I know you guys are listening, but uh, I don't know who you guys are personally as much as I would like to, of course. And uh, that also being said, if anybody's an author, researcher, experiencer, paranormal investigator, cryptozoologist, occultist, whistleblower, any of that fun stuff, any of these open-minded type of individuals, I'd definitely love to sit down and have you on the show for a conversation. So uh, don't hesitate to shoot me an email at inquiriesallrealitypodcast at outlook.com, or you guys can shoot me a message on Instagram. That's the one that I'm the most active on. Or you guys can go to the link tree, fill out the submission form, and that will go directly to my email. And uh, make sure you check your spam or junk folders, make sure nothing gets missed because 
it seems like a lot of the stuff that I send goes that way because of me sending links, of course, to in the podcast. So make sure nothing gets missed because I do respond to every single message that you guys send me. And if you guys can't get enough of my content, don't forget to uh, go and check out Bizarre Encounters if you haven't already. Uh, my two awesome co-hosts, Orin and Jenny, are over there helping me uh, do some deep dives into some weird topics. And just like the name says, uh, we get into some bizarre encounters. And if you guys want to get updates on everything that I'm doing all in one place, I do have a page set up for Open Minds Media. There, I kind of just universally post all the new episodes going on with both shows, uh, anything that kind of fits under the Open Minds Media umbrella. So uh, if you guys don't want to have to follow all the different pages individually, at least go follow the Open Minds Media page. And if you guys want to support the show, there's multiple ways to do so. You guys can join the awesome ranks of the uh, Patreon members that are currently hanging out over there. Uh, There's multiple tiers. Uh, All of them include different benefits, of course. Uh, Some of those benefits include ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, lives of episodes, live replays of episodes if you're not able to make it to the lives, which is like the uh, raw video format, of course, of the episodes. There's also exclusive merch store discounts. Uh, Something I'm going to be incorporating is that there's probably going to be a monthly Patreon hangout or discord. I haven't quite figured out which, uh, which means I'm going to push that onto yet. Uh, but yeah, go and check out the Patreon, uh, see what tier seems to fit you the best and, uh, any support always appreciated, of course. And if you guys want to donate to the show directly, there's multiple ways to do so. Uh, you can do so through cash app, Venmo, PayPal, or red circle, which is the RSS host for the show. Uh, if you guys want to donate through that means, of course, go down to the bottom of the show description. You'll see something along the lines of, uh, support this show on red circle. Uh, there you can donate whatever you happen to choose. And uh, if you guys donate, of course, make sure that uh, you leave your name, some kind of personal message. Uh, if it doesn't give you the option to, of course, uh, shoot me a message and let me know that you donate because I definitely want to give you guys a shout out on the show for supporting the show. Um, anything on that front, of course, is going to be used towards going to conventions this year, being able to interact with you guys, meet you guys all out in person and uh, eventually make it so that maybe I can do this as a full time thing and produce a ridiculous amount of content for you guys. If I'm able to just kind of sit here and do my deep research and record episodes, like I'll record podcasts for you guys all day, but you guys got to help me get to that point, of course. And the third way to support the show is through the Open Minds Media Merch Store. Uh, There you'll find designs for all the different shows that I do. And I am currently working on some new designs that aren't just the logos. One new design that I've been working on, of course, is uh, basically the intro to the show uh, done as a t-shirt because it seems like a lot of you guys like the wording the beginning of the show. So I'm going to incorporate that into a t-shirt somehow. And uh, another one I've been working on for Bizarre Encounters, of course, uh, you know, we say stay bizarre at the end. That's kind of became the catchphrase. So I'm going to be incorporating that into a pretty cool looking uh, new shirt that has an alien abduction uh, design on the front of it. But I think you guys will really like it. So so keep your eyes open for any of that stuff that'll be dropping soon. And of course, I'll probably when I drop it onto the merch store, I will announce it through the uh, social media pages if you guys are following that over there. Um, if any of you guys pick up any of the designs from the merch store, I would definitely appreciate it if you guys didn't mind sending me a picture of you guys wearing it so I can repost it on the page and show that there's uh, love and support for the shows out there. And uh, while we're talking love and support, don't forget about Joe over there at Crypto Theology. Always killing it with his awesome designs. Honestly, one of my favorite uh, designers as far as the uh, crypto community goes. Um, I think he has really, really good original designs. I think you guys will really enjoy him if you haven't went and checked him out yet. So I highly recommend going and checking him out and picking up yourself something nice from the Open Minds Media Store and the Crypto Theology Store. And of course, everything I mentioned, all available under the link tree, which is down in the show description. And with that, let's get into the show. Please welcome to the show, author, researcher, and self-proclaimed troublemaker, Carl Tykrib. How's it going today, man? 
Hey, I'm doing good. Glad to be on your show, Shane. Looking forward to this. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And we already had a two-hour conversation before it even starts. So I can already tell the listeners are going to love this show. And you have a lot of interesting things to say and a lot of interesting work. And I'm really looking forward to uh, the listeners getting to hear everything that you have to say today. Well, you know, if we had been recording two hours ago, my goodness, we, we've already had we've already had a fantastic conversation. And, and Shane, I so uh, enjoyed just being able to get to know you. This is this is pretty cool. It always helps with that cold flow coming in too. I always like when you can chop into the show and actually, you know, be used to how, how each other converse with each other and get into that good method of thinking. And then in turn, it ends up creating a better show because then you're not doing that, putting your feelers out for the first like half hour of the show. It kind of makes it so you can really get into the in-depth stuff that you want to do right off the bat. And it kind of gets rid of that, that feeling around concept for a little bit. Well, absolutely for sure. And, and at the same time, uh, I feel like I could hop on over to your place and have a cup of coffee and just have a good visit. Oh yeah, definitely. And the door's always open if you weren't, uh, unfortunately, in another country. <laughs> but yeah, <I> know. <laughs> good news is I'm right on the border, so maybe it's not too far. <laughs> You're but a two-day drive. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. So uh, I guess a good part, a uh, good place to start for anybody that's not familiar with who you are, what you do exactly. Uh, why don't you kind of give them an idea about exactly who you are and exactly what you do? All right. Well, uh, I've been engaged as a researcher in the realm of, uh, of global politics, uh, religious change, cultural changeover, uh, transhumanism, kind of standing at that crossroad where all of these various movements, philosophies, and influences have been converging. And I've been doing this full time. Uh, this is actually my job. been doing this full-time since 1997, and a lot of my material has ended up in uh, the works of, of other authors, um, other social researchers, and I'm the author of a book entitled Game of Gods, The Temple of Man and the Age of Reenchantment. Before that, for a period of time, I was uh, editing an online magazine entitled Forcing Change, which took a look at those various uh, influences of change it was political, cultural, religious forces of change, and so that's that is what I do. And now I, I'm tackling it from a. I'm not going to hide my biases. I allow my biases to be to stand as they are. My because I want to be transparent about that. So I embrace a, a Christian worldview from an evangelical point of reference. Uh, I'm pro liberty, pro individualistic, versus our politically directed. <laughs> Equality and that socially generated collectivism that we've all been feeling. No, thank you. And I am pro-free market um, on the left-right spectrum. And, and I'd like to bring this out right off the bat because I think a lot of people use those, those you know, that language without really even thinking about it. Uh, I am definitely on the right in the sense that I believe in maximum personal responsibility and minimum government involvement, whereas the left is understood as maximum government and minimum personal responsibility. So those are my general and overall biases. Um, but uh, yeah, my material has been used by other authors, commentators, political researchers. Um, it's gone all over the place in various ways. And it's kind of weird how, you know, you write something and because and I've been writing now, golly, I've been writing uh, since already, you know, the mid-1990s, but like I said, full-time since 97, all of a sudden some article or something is sent my way and I'm reading through it and I'm going, wow, uh, this, this vaguely sounds familiar. All of a sudden you realize, hey, 
I wrote this <laughs> 20, 25 years ago and somebody is full circle sending it to me going, you should read this. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah I wrote it. <laughs> so it's kind of strange when you've been around, the, you know, around the block for, for a period of time like that. And, and just the change over that we've seen in terms of, of, you know, personal communication, the internet, our so-called information society, um, just how all that has, has played into it. So it's been an interesting ride, Shane, really interesting ride. Where did it all kind of like start for you as far as like, uh, you know, of course, a lot of the people that kind of have our method of thinking, you kind of think that way your entire life, but you kind of get to like a, like a peak point where you feel like you really have to be able to like portray your message and really be able to tell people about your research and everything that you've been diving into. Uh, what was kind of like your, your main turning point where you decided to take all the information you're collecting and turn it into books and articles and uh, really start to like project your, your uh, research out to the world? Okay, that, that's a great question. Two turning points. First of all, and you'll know this from your own life's experience, that, that there comes a point where all of a sudden you're forced to take a look at what's happening around you. It, something happens to you and you just stop and you go, okay, I've got to examine this because something isn't quite right. I never entered my adult world or my adult life thinking that this is what I'm going to do for a living. I had no intentions of this. I didn't even, that kind of thinking hadn't even entered my, my, my patterns at all. Um, but I started off, boy, this would be, I was in my early 20s and I was working for a healthcare program in my local village. Uh, I grew up on a grain farm. I'm in rural Manitoba, Canada. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not heavily populated. That's for sure. Lucky. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's true. You know, I, it's one of those kind of situations where, you know, everybody, whether you want to or not, that's just how small towns and, and rural areas work. But, but I was, I was part of a, of a community run healthcare program in our, in, in the community or in the town of Gladstone. That's the town I, I grew up close to. And all of my board of, of directors were, were either members of the Masonic Lodge or the Eastern Star or the Royal Purples or the two other associated lodges that we had in our community. Now, in a town of 800, that's all we had for our community in terms of population. We had, I think, five different affiliated lodges of some type, with, of course, the Masonic Lodge being the kind of the mothership, so to speak. And I was being pressured to join. I'm a young guy. I'm, I'm you know, connected in the, into my community. I'm involved with the politics of it to some extent. Um, but I wasn't interested. I had zero interest in, in, you know, zero interest in joining the lodge. I mean, you know, wh why? It, it was just promising me more meetings. And I was already meeting out already, going to, to different functions and di different things uh, in, in the capacity of, of, of my job. And so I, I had no interest, had zero interest in joining the lodge. And, and, they would ask me, hey, you know, how come you're not joining? Or, or they would, I would ask them, what are you involved with? Well, we're about making good men better. That was the shtick. That was the common line. We're about making good men better. I thought to myself, whoop-de-doo. Whoop-de-doo. If I want to be a, a you know, better person, this assumes I'm a good person to begin with, which I think is probably a faulty assumption. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I want to be a better person, I'll go help my dad on the farm after work. Why do I need to go to, to some meeting in a building with no windows? No, thank you. So I wasn't joining. Finally, two of my board of directors pulled me aside for a supper meeting and, and grilled me for about an hour or so on why I wasn't joining the lodge. And I, I asked them, are you political? No, we're not political. Are you religious? No, we're not religious. 
well, what are you about? We're about making good men better. You know, back to the same, the same line. Finally, one of them said something. And Shane, this is where it all turned. This is where it flipped. One of the men said something, I, and I believe he'd said this to appease fears I never had because a thought had never entered my mind. He said, Carl, we're not Satanists. <laughs> exactly. that's like saying i'm not a racist <laughs> um if you're thinking it then you probably are <laughs> yeah like like come on i mean you know let's say we go to buy a car on a, on a used car lot and i'm kicking tires around and, and the cinch of sales because i'm obviously not interested this the salesperson says you know we're not we're not saying this you use that as your excuse i mean this it's ridiculous it was just it was a bizarre comment, and I didn't have any context for why it was said. All I knew, Shane, was I had alarm bells going off in the back of my mind going, what in the world have you been accused of? <laughs> why would you say something as ridiculous as this? And so at that point, I went off on a tangent, looking to find what I could on Freemasonry. And I ended up for the first few years uh, diving into their literature. I didn't even know there were books written about the Lodge. I just figured I'll go straight to the source. Uh, I'll read their manuals. I'll look for their, their ritual books. And from there, it spins off into theosophy, into Rosicrucianism, uh, into, into the hermetic sciences. And you end up into this big involved study that way. And you know, in a couple of years, I was already poking into the more of the political side because I could see a commonality, a commonality and thought pattern, and that is that there's a sense of of a, of a universalism, and that you're part of something bigger than yourself, and you're looking to to make the world into something different. You're part of this great work, and so I I use that model of my own community and said, okay, if I see this model where my where the lodge in many respects influences my town, because it did. Do I say, see this same model being used in other areas? Can I see it provincially? Can I see it federally? Can I see it at a broader level? And yes, the further out I went, the more I could see this same model. Not necessarily that everybody involved in globalization is Freemasons, not at all. But the model, the worldview, that mindset, that thinking, that, that, that special club was there. And so that was my point of entry. I had no idea that that, that that one little phrase, Carl, we're not Satanists, would march me down this road. But that's where I went. Uh, the second turning point happened in 1995. I was, uh, by that point, I was writing uh, just, you know, little side articles and, and, and things on these subjects. But I also, I, I grew up with motorcycles and, and I love riding bike. Um, and in, in about 93, 94, uh, just as I was kind of playing around with the idea of writing as a side hobby, um, I started writing some motorcycle magazine articles and I submitted them and, and they were being published. And in 1995, I had won a, a national writing award for, uh, for my motorcycle articles um, because I, I love biking. And uh, so in 1995, it was all of a sudden I, I had this, this bit of a toss up. Um, it looked like I had a burgeoning moto journalist career that was starting to unravel in front of me. Yet at the same time, there was this heavy, big subject that I was deeply ingrained in, in trying to understand that I was wrestling with. Now it involved politics, it involved culture, it involved religion and philosophy, it involved, of course, the esoteric and the occult side and all that, that goes with that. 
So I've got this massive weighty subject on the other side of this argument. Which which side am I going to go? The motor journalist side or or this other side? And uh, we had a tragedy in my family. My, my youngest uh, brother was killed uh, in a truck accident a mile away from the farm. And, and it was one of those experiences, and he was 17 years old. It was one of those experiences where he went, all right, uh, it's a turning point. you got to make a choice. What's the more important? Writing about motorcycling? Having a great time out in the street or out in the dirt? Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Honestly, Shane, I would still love to do that and pursue that because it's kind of cool. But at the same time, I knew that there was a direction I needed to follow, and that was tackling this other this other subject that is so important now and so relevant and so pervasive. And so that's where I went. 1997, uh, I ended up getting a, a phone call because I had already been producing some, some articles and some little reports on these subjects. I got a phone call in 1997 in the spring from an author of a book. Uh, his name is Gary Kaw. He lives in Indiana. And he had wrote a book called En Route to Global Occupation, which was an early book on the subject of global governance, uh, the New World Order and New Age occult and esoteric influences within that. It kind of blended everything together along the same lines as that I had been exploring. And so uh, I ended up moving down south uh, with my family and uh, ended up helping him for four years in Indiana and helped him write a book entitled The New World Religion. I was his uh, lead researcher on that book. And uh, then in, in 2001, uh, we returned back to Manitoba because of, of just how wonderfully bureaucratic and, uh, and, and twisted your, your immigration process is. We were like, you know, hang it. We can do what we, are, what we need to do from the Canadian side. And so we returned. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. So there you go. I just gave you a bit of a, a longer history than I thought I would. But you now have a, a bit of a glimpse into my life that way. Well, I mean, I guess it gives a good picture of kind of like where you're talking about when it comes into a lot of the deeper topics that we're going to get into here. And uh, at least from my understanding, and I'm kind of curious what your understanding is as far as like your research goes, but when it comes to like these Freemason societies, uh, it's almost like a pyramid scheme. That's kind of like the best way to describe it, where the people who are all up at the very top have all the knowledge and they have a full understanding of what the organization's actually doing, but they also still need the people down at the bottom that are supporting their work and not actually even understanding what they're doing. And in turn, it almost kind of dilutes them out, where, like you said, with that specific comment that we're not Satanists, maybe all the people on the bottom don't realize that it's a satanic organization because they're not actually the ones who are really involved in what the organization is doing. They're just the numbers to kind of pull away from the people that are actually doing something. And you see it a lot with these lodges that people are so determined that, oh, it's like pretty much like a men's hangout club. That's what a lot of people like to describe it as, not realizing how dark of occult principles are really in it as you start progressing up. And when I've talked to a few different people who have come from like occult backgrounds and they pretty much kind of say that they try to incorporate anybody that seems like they have any type of intelligence um, for the aspect of, you know, you'd rather have them be with you than against you if you see them as being an intelligent individual that may end up speaking out against you. Um, but then once they see that, you know, you have these abilities, that your mind works in the way that they want it to, then they start pushing you up. And when they start pushing you up, um, they make it sound like they're doing all these different like magic type things, but realistically they're trying to manipulate you to break you down so that they can control what you're doing. And I mean, it's, it's always weird stuff. Like um, I was hearing, for example, they said to put your finger inside of this thing and twist it down as far as you could. And they were trying to see if you would one push pain on yourself because they asked you to, 
or two to see if you're going to be the intelligent one that um, from like the description he was saying that there was a hole going from the side and then there was a hole from the bottom and you could stick your hole th through the side which is exactly like how they want you to think but if you stuck your hole your finger down in the hole from the bottom where you essentially tighten the thing all the way down and just pushes your thumb out of the bottom and you're not getting hurt that shows that you have the method of thinking that they want you to progress towards the top that you're thinking outside of the box and as an individual and in turn because you're able to think and manipulate things back like that then in turn you can manipulate the people below you and it just turns into essentially this pyramid scheme of constant manipulation going up to the top where these people have this infinite knowledge which you know a lot of people who aren't familiar with like Freemasons and the Illuminati and stuff that, you know, they, they have this whole perception that it's all like magic, magic, magic. But realistically, it's not, I see so much as like magic, but more so just like a really in-depth understanding of psychology and in turn with the process of that too. I feel like there's a lot of different things that they are fully aware of as far as like things that people have figured out in the past and they hide it behind this image of it being magic when realistically it's a science of psychology and understanding how to manipulate the human mind into thinking exactly how you want them to think. And so you, again, you have this whole like pyramid scheme where you have the person up at the top who realizes that the way everything is structured and the way everything works and who's almost like a mastermind of psychology and then in turn everybody else below them they're able to manipulate and then they have those special people that think different who are able to get around these things and know how to like manipulate the puzzles themselves and then those are the people who end up pushing their way up to the top but i mean at least from like your research what, what's kind of like your understanding as far as like all that kind of stuff goes well, the, the role of ritual has a, a profound psychological effect. It, it really does. Uh, and we are neurochemical creatures. Uh, we, are, we are designed as neurochemical beings with, with rationality, with the ability to, to process and discern and to, and to use thought. Uh, and I believe that we're also souls. We're souls that uh, you know, in, in inhabit our bodies. Um, that really we are an incredibly complex creature of mind, body, and spirit. And, and when I consider how Freemasonry and how esoteric um, movements really look to, and you're right, manipulate, especially that psychology side, it, it, it's done in such a way that it offers a, a carrot. It offers a, a, a prize. And if you can, if you can follow uh, you know, the, the model that's been laid out and you've experienced uh, this incredible psychological uh, and, and powerful social experience, and you've done this together in a group, and it's a unique group. You're now part of a unique culture. Uh, you're set apart. You're a little bit different than everybody else. That's how you perceive yourself because you have experienced something that not everybody around you will, will understand or partake in. But what strikes me, as I consider what they, what they teach, because what they teach reinforces what you've experienced in the, in, in, in the, the ritual work, is that, there, and there are three primary things. You can be as God in their own writing, in their own literature, especially their works of philosophy. They're quite clear in this. You can be as God. In fact, I'm going to read you a, a quote from Manly P. Hall, who was a very influential thinker within, the, within Freemasonry in the last 100, 100 years. He says, man is a God in the making, and as in the mystic myths of Egypt on the potter's wheel, he is being molded. When his light shines out to lift and perceive all things, he receives the triple crown of Godhood and joins that throng of master masons who, in their robes of blue and gold, are seeking to dispel the darkness of night. 
with the triple light of the Masonic Lodge. Uh, here's another one from George Steinmetz, another Masonic philosopher from the last century. Man is impelled towards perfection. There is that within man, his innermost div divinity, which informs him of the possibility of attaining completeness of being and urges him on to strive for that attainment. So there's this, there's a sense that you can be as God, you can be perfected. Uh, and, and then the other thing that, that I, that as I was stripping down Freemasonry to see what was the core of their teachings, the other side that came through loud and clear is that there is a, a push for universalism, specifically religious universalism, that any man of every faith whether you are a Hindu or a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian, can kneel before the altar and you are all part of the brotherhood of God, pardon me, the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. And you are now operating in a new collective of sorts that is universalistic in its, in its, um, in its outlook. And so those are the things that really struck me. And, and, and I can see that that even though the average Freemason, the average man that I would talk to in my community had never read the literature of the Lodge, it didn't take away from the fact that that is exactly what the Lodge, even the symbols of the Lodge, the acts that they were engaged in in, the, in their ritual work was all pointing towards. So it, it's interesting, you're right, there, there is a, a hierarchy of thinking where those, you know, the average man who joins a lodge doesn't understand and, and usually doesn't take the time to do what they're supposed to do, which is, is, to, is to read their own works of, of philosophy, their own works of history, to read their own commentaries, because they have that, and then wrestle with it. But they don't. Most men don't. Most people don't engage it at that level. Um, and so for the average Mason, to them, it's just, as you just described it a few minutes ago, kind of just a club, you know, a good old boys club, a social club, a social get together. But for those who do have an understanding and, and, and are able then to, to, to walk down that path, uh, you'll end up all of a sudden uh, kind of, you know, seeing your Masonic experience in, in a very different light. Um, I had that, I had an encounter back in golly, this is, I think, 1999, 1998. Um, I was at a world government meeting in Washington, D.C., and yes, that's part of what I do, go to these kinds of events. Um, and I had taken with me some Rosicrucian materials because I wanted to go to the House of the Temple, uh, the Masonic, the Scottish Rite House of the Temple in Washington, D.C. I'm not a Mason. I've never joined the Lodge. I've never... You know, I, I didn't pursue it any, you know, in, in that respect at all. I just was after their own literature to try to understand it from that point of view and then do interviews and, and explore it academically. And so I had taken this Rosicrucian material with me and uh, at the House of the Temple, the big, big opening or the big doors opened up and they're big doors and uh, this little man welcomed me in and it was just, it, it was weird. It's like something out of like a, of, of a movie. And he's like, can I help you? And I said, and this is what I said to him. I said, I am not a Mason. I'm not a member of the Masonic Lodge, but I am a student of the mysteries. And I pulled up my, the Rosicrucian materials I had in my briefcase. And I wanted to use that as an opening to see what would happen if I would approach it like this. Because I was a student of the mysteries in the sense that I'm wrestling with it. I'm trying to understand it. And he opened the door and, and his words were, welcome home. And then we ended up having like a three-hour discussion at an esoteric level, the meaning of the symbols, 
the the structures of the, the structure of the lodge itself. It was very enlightening because it reinforced everything I'd been reading through the works of Manly P. Hall and Willemshurst and Foster Bailey and Albert Pike and and all of these other Masonic luminaries. And I'm like, you know, yeah, you're right. The average guy who's who's involved in the lodge for the most part doesn't have a clue. I mean, again, it's. I think it's intentionally withheld from them that way. I mean, they intentionally hide it almost like right in front of their face, too, because, I mean, like, they have the Masonic uh, Bible, for example, and, you know, it looks to the average person like it's just a typical Christian Bible, but when you really start digging into it, you realize that it has a bunch of this occult information that's hidden within the Bible, so they almost are able to progress this these occult ideas through, like, a false sense of, like, Christianity, where the average person joining almost thinks that they're joining, like, a Christian group, not realizing, like, how in-depth the research really is. And then when you even break down like the, the key of like what a Freemason is, like where the term Freemason comes from, you know, the, the group goes back to the, the builders of the tower of Babel. And that's where like the Freemason part comes from. So essentially like if you break it down to its key components, you have these people that are masquerading behind the fact saying that they're Christians. When you go back to the very origin, the origin of what they were doing in the first place. And essentially they were trying to make the tower to God in order to take over, over heaven and you know it, it it's right in front of their face and it it's it's hidden to the average person and it, I, I don't understand why people don't end up like seeing through this stuff especially if they're in-depth thinkers and they're in the freemasons in the first place i mean that almost kind of proves the fact that they're intentionally having a bunch of people there just as like a ploy just to kind of pull away from them um and they have this intentionally so that the right person will read through their book see exactly what they're trying to do and then again those are the people that they're going to progress up because they want those people that are the occult thinkers that are looking for the deep secrets they're looking for the mysteries and again that's why they said to you you know like welcome brother to the the school of mystery because it's not about what they pretend like they're about it's about something else and you it's almost like you found like a backdoor way in to be able to get into their information and you saw right through this fake facade that they're trying to put on to the average person yeah and, and you know to to your point on uh the average mason not understanding this I, I had a really fascinating conversation a number of years ago i spoke at a conference um golly it was in branson missouri and in my presentation i had just offhand mentioned freemasonry and that it wasn't the point of my talk it wasn't a major theme it was just some offhand comment so this guy comes up to, to my book table, and my wife is at the book table, and, uh, and he says, I need to talk to your husband. And he held, holds out his hand, and he's got a ring, a Masonic ring, and he says, I'm a 32nd degree Mason. I want to talk to your husband. So I ended up having a good conversation with him, a really good conversation, actually. And, and his daddy had been a Mason. He himself had been a Mason for decades. His daddy had been a Mason. His grandfather had been a Mason. So it was a family thing. And he was asking why I had mentioned Freemasonry the way I did. And I asked him I was right off the bat, and I said, um, you know, our, uh, because we wanted to establish a line of authority, because we have to have some kind of a, of a common point to, to have this kind of a discussion. And I said to him, um, have you ever been involved in writing any of the ritual work for, for, for the Masonic Lodge? Well, no. Uh, have you written any recognized books or, or research journals within the Masonic Research Association or within your own Masonic community uh, that is of a, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, 
a philosophy of Freemasonry? Are you are a noted, recognized philosopher within within your Masonic community? No. Uh, have you written any, uh, you know, been involved in writing anything that would set you up as some authority within the lodge? No, no. And you haven't held any national positions? No. But you're a 32nd degree Mason. So you're the average 32nd degree Mason. So I explained to him, I said, so, and now this is important to understand. In Freemasonry, there's there's a, a push that says, or not a push, but uh, a belief that, that basically says that you need to interpret it for yourself. Every man can interpret it the way he sees fit. Fine. I will now interpret it the way your major philosophers and thinkers have interpreted it, not what you, as the regular 32nd degree Mason, thinks of it. So that's the approach I took with him. So knowing that he has doesn't have, pardon me, doesn't have that foundation. He hasn't taken the time to actually study his own material. I said to him, the bottom line problem I have with Freemasonry, outside of the rituals and all the other stuff is, you're seeking self-divinity. You are seeking perfectibility. And at that point, he stops me and he goes, you're right. That's, that's even in such and such a degree. And, and that was true. And you're seeking universalism. I said, I will write a report for you. And I am putting this on the internet and I end up making it into a public document. But I will write a report for you outlining what you're supposed to know as a Mason. And then you can go back to your Masonic library and you can check the context for all the quotes I'm giving you and you can see whether what I'm saying is accurate or not. So I did. And six months later, I received a letter back from the 32nd degree Mason going, I have letter, written a letter of resignation to my lodge. I cannot be a Christian and a Mason. It's just not compatible. Um, because what I have read in your report and double-checked it in our library, uh, you are accurate. You are correct. Um, and I never saw this. I couldn't see this for whatever reason. He, uh, he just didn't take the time to actually study what he was involved with. But isn't that how we operate, though, Shane? You know, we don't take the time. We just don't. We would rather, you know, come home after hard days of work, sit in front of the television, watch whatever mindless drivel they're, they're feeding you, um, pop your favorite beverage, and um, put your feet up and not think. We're the society of not thinkers. Ironically, because we came from a society of philosophers, too. <laughs> so we right, kind of went on the right. opposite side of the spectrum there. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, it, it's an interesting study. I mean, I don't make Freemasonry the, the thrust of what I do, not at all. But that was the, you know, the, the what, what kind of, how do I say this? It, it lit the fuse to, to try to understand what in the world is going on. Because it, it forced me to go down that road. Um just by by the absurdity of that statement that was that was made to me and and i'm a curious individual don't say things like that <laughs> <laughs> well i mean that kind of pushes into the whole idea about like mass manipulation and i mean it starts from somewhere like you were saying you kind of saw these different um 
these different concepts and structures uh, existing in different places. And I mean, you have that idea with like the Freemasons where you have the the people that are just all blindly following the idea of what they think the organization is. And then the people up top that actually understand what's going on. And then you follow that model into like society as a whole. And then you end up with this whole thing where you have like the woke movement and people are personally attached to these concepts of the woke movement, just like how people are personally attached to the concepts of like being a Freemason. And they don't realize like what the end game is and the fact that they're being manipulated by the people up at the very top and that it's it's all just a progression into basically making it so that people aren't actually thinking about stuff anymore they're just blindly following what they think the people that are educated are telling them and in turn they end up pushing these philosophies and all of these different methods of thinking that are completely against what their own personal views are but because they've been so manipulated into having a a personal attachment to these ideas and to just like the group as a whole they don't realize what they're doing. They don't realize that they're actually damaging society as a whole, that they're not doing anything. They, they, they hide it under the term progressive, but realistically it's not progressive. It's actually degressing us into a weird state where nobody knows how to think anymore. Nobody knows how to react to things. Nobody knows how to do things anymore. And in turn, it pushes everybody into this method of blindly following who they think is in charge because they think that they know what's best for them, not realizing that, again, they have their own agenda and that everybody else below them is just a pawn in their grand scheme of what they're doing. And everything goes back to the pyramids. And I mean, you see the symbolism in Freemason thing. You see it throughout everything, that everything comes back to this like pyramid concept and everybody looks at it as, again, like magic, but it may just be in the simplest form, a symbolism for, or a symbol for basically like being able to control the masses underneath you being the intelligent, intelligent, you know, air quotes one up at the top. Well, to your point of, of manipulating, uh, through the use of language, because that's language is so important. If you can, if you can harness the power of language, uh, it's amazing how you can bend and shape how people will think. And, and we've just seen that. I mean, my goodness, we had a, a three-year example in this where we had terms like follow the science, which basically meant, in a sense, put your brain on hold. And, and now we, we gravitate to that because it affirms the decisions that we've made whether they were right or wrong decisions, we end up affirming those decisions and, and, and it allows us to feel like we're now part of something. We've made this decision. We're part of this group. Um, but I'm sorry, the, the language is, is intentional. The language is powerful. And that language has, has given you now a confirmation which may not be true. And so we, we, we are always with it within, when you take a look at manipulating a culture, manipulating society, language is vital because that is the only way that we're able to communicate ideas truly. I mean, we can do it with pictures, we can do it with symbols. Those are, you, that usually back, backs up, that usually backs up the language that's already in play. Um, I was telling you before we, we began the, uh, uh, before we began recording, a little bit about how for the last couple of years I was intentionally watching, and it was self-torture, but it, it was important self-torture, intentionally watching my province's uh, public health announcements as they came out on a weekly basis. And I didn't watch them all. I, I think I probably watched a solid half or listened to a solid half of them because I wanted to hear the language. Because even though the messaging was the same, 
there was always a shift in language that was happening every few weeks as they would like to see the public take it from this perspective or from that perspective. And then I would listen as our media would immediately queue up and follow that same language, reinforcing that earlier message, but just now using a different language entry point. And then I would listen as my neighbors and my friends and the people around me would now start to mirror that same message and that same language. And I know that it had never entered their thought the week before. It was a powerful, powerful demonstration regarding the power of language, the art of manipulation through propaganda, reinforcing it over and over and over again, 24-7. So, you know, the pandemic aside... Just the focus on what they did in terms of the use of language and social control, the power of messaging, uh, I am I'm convinced, Shane, that in the next, next decade or two, uh, we're going to be seeing books written on, on what happened in terms of the last three years and, and using it as a model to, ha to have a better understanding in terms of, of social behavior. I'm sure that there's already probably been oodles of studies on that. Uh, or if, if they're not, they're, they're in the process. They have to be because you couldn't escape it and it was in your face. And it's one of those things too that when it comes to like the science, it's it's almost become in a weird way that like we don't want to follow religion because it's like a belief system. But then we believe science because it's a fact as they like to claim that it is. But realistically, it's also a belief system because you're not doing these experiments. You're not doing any of these things on your own. You're taking somebody else's words and assuming that they're fact. So then again, you have this push where they push away towards like all these religious and spiritual ideas saying that they're woo-woo, that whatever. And then they're pushing this whole idea that science is fact, science is fact. But it's not necessarily fact. It's all theories. And I was talking about it a little bit before the show about the fact that even in science, you know, people like to drop the word theory out of it, like Big Bang Theory. You talk about it in school, it's just the Big Bang. Uh, you talk about the theory of evolution. You talk about it in school, and it's just evolution. And they just have this whole progress that basically I kind of believe that in a sense they're going to almost like use science as a new religion temporarily so that everybody kind of gets mixed up and starts kind of staying steering away from the spiritual and then in turn they're going to be able to kind of flip the script on like the spiritual aspect of stuff and again I was talking about it a little bit before we started recording but I kind of have this belief that they're going to essentially take the positive influence that there is as far as religion like god for example and they're going to flip it to make it look like he's the bad guy and especially when you start digging into like the old testament stuff when you talk about um you know god it's like asking somebody to like kill their kid as like not not actually like assume that they would do it but just out of like seeing if they if somebody was actually going to listen to what he had to say and they're going to start taking those things and start flipping them and start telling people that like oh he didn't want you to have knowledge he didn't want you to know about the world but there's these things and they were just trying to come and they were just trying to give you knowledge and they were just trying to teach you things but they're not the bad guys and then you even hear it um when it comes to like the new age of Satanism, as it seems that I feel like half these people are kind of doing it more so as like a troll and not necessarily because they believe it, but all it takes is a couple generations before they start believing it. Once you disconnect them from the old method of thinking, and then you have rules in Satanism, such as like, um, you know, don't, don't hurt children. But then you see the other side of it where you see all these like elites that are into, you know, all the weird stuff that's in, that involves kids. And it's like, they're progressing this message, but they're also not following the message, but they're going to intentionally use it as a script to make it so that they can flip everything 
and make it so that um, everybody will essentially start following the darkness, thinking that the darkness is the good and that the light is the bad. And I mean, even in movies and popular culture, you see it that they're starting to get rid of these defined lines between good and evil, where even in like kids shows, for example, they're making it from the perspective of the bad guy that he's not really that bad of a guy. He's actually a good guy. He has good intentions, but he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think it's all an intentional like corralling kind of like we're talking about with the power of language that rather than having somebody say like, this is your idea, this is what you're going to think because people don't react well to that. You start putting in these little triggers here and there to make it so that you're corralling somebody into this method of thinking. And then when somebody thinks that they thought of that thought on their own, then they have a personal attachment to it and then they'll fight for that thing to the death not even understanding realistically what they're pushing, but again, they have a personal tie to it because they feel that they came to that conclusion on their own when realistically they didn't, they were just pushed into that conclusion. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and you know, this is very, very evident. Um, and, and language operates as that oil, that lubricant just to allow information and ideas and concepts to flow. And, and once it's embedded in, and it's lodged into a culture, it can be hard to break. Um, and, and in terms of, of your description of, of flipping the narrative, it's interesting. Now, Jacques Ellul, who was a, a French theologian and uh, a, a social thinker back, oh golly, he, some of his books go back to the late 19, pardon me, early 1970s. Um, he, he suggested that secularism with, uh, with its idea of, of the ascendancy of science was an intermediate stage, an intermediate stage between one religion, one dominant religion, being displaced by another. And in the meantime, you've got to have this gap or this, this phase between the two. And, and it will appear to be a-religious or non-religious. But in reality, it itself ends up becoming very religious. And in fact, when you consider science as scientism, then all of a sudden you have entered the realm of this is a belief, uh, this is a belief structure, this is a... Um, a methodology. This is no longer just, hey, I'm doing the, you know, uh, 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 I'm, I'm just engaging in observation, uh, uh, experimentation, and it's, it's not that at all. You've now run into this, this, this mindset that is essentially religious and to the point of being fundamentalist in its faith in science. And yeah, at that point you realize that okay, then then you have a, a religion where the the priest you know the, the priest craft are wearing white robes, uh, lab lab coats. Uh, they have their own their own works of of uh, of holy writ. Uh, they have their own you know their own prophets, and then they even have their own eschatologies. And if you want to take a look at it from the perspective of of let's say climate and 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 global governance. Uh, that absolutely fits the bill. So there is, you can't escape, you can't escape this idea or this, this the importance of the idea of religion. Um, here's something to think about, and, and I hope your, your audience will wrestle with this a little bit. Religion determines philosophy. Philosophy will shape the way a culture thinks in terms of art, its value system, family structures, all that feeds back on each other to some extent, and then that informs law and politics 
which gives us government. And if the top part is already wrong, the rest of it will have errors all throughout it. And so if the top part is, if, if that religion is scientism, then you're going to be seeing policies and outcomes and social behaviors that's going to follow suit. And what's interesting with this, with that model is government or politics ends up becoming a faith in itself. And it has its own, the own, its, its own marking of, of, a, of a form of a cult that, that fits the bill uh, when it comes to, to, to thinking how religion will shape, will shape outcomes. And so then you have things like, you know, the Soviet Union, where you had the, the cult of personality, whether it was Lenin or whether it was Stalin or in, in Maoist China, Mao Zedong, or in, in you know, Cambodia with Pol Pot. Uh, I mean, and they all end up being hellhole freak shows. They, they started off with incredible utopian ideas and became bloody utopian nightmares, every one of them. Um, but it was essentially religious. I mean, even connecting into the, like the whole religious aspect with people not being as religious as they used to be nowadays. So you, of course, still have to be able to do that push through another means. And people may not necessarily like believe in a religion, but at the same time, though, what they're intaking is still religious at its root because you dig into music, for example, and you see all of this like occult symbolism in it and all of the satanic symbolism. And people aren't necessarily like connecting with a religion, but they're still intaking that information and they're still being manipulated by that information. So if you start, if you do believe that there is like a dark and a light force, then the dark force is almost controlling society through music, through entertainment without them even realizing it. And when you end up talking to people about these like occult principles, they may not even realize it, but just from listening to like lyrics of songs and different things, they're actually might be learning about satanic principles or about occult principles through that. So rather than them in the past, like they're able to being able to kind of control society and everything directly through religion, they're still doing it, but they're doing it in a little bit more incognito way where rather than there being like a preacher that's sitting there in front of everybody and like preaching this message out, instead you have this person that you're listening to through headphones that's affecting you directly without you even realizing it, that's preaching all of these religious concepts to you, but yet you still want to deny like the aspect of there being like religion or some type of like spiritual connection to anything, but yet you're, you're ingesting it all the time through all of the different entertainment that you're taking in. Right. Right. And, and that's actually a more powerful form of preaching. It's a more pervasive form is because of its, the power of its subtlety and, and the fact that, that you've allowed it to, to, you know, lodge in your mind uncritically at least, you know, when I go to church and I'm listening to a message, uh, when our pastor's preaching, I'm engaged in critical thought. There is critical processes that are taking place. I am I'm looking to see in, in God's Word, I'm going through Scripture, uh, I, and I'm wrestling with what is being said. But when it comes to, to what you've just described, when you've put your brain on hold and, and, and you've just simply allowed it to, to act as, quote-unquote, entertainment, um, I think it has a far more powerful effect because of that that subtle influence. Um, you know, ideas are powerful, and ideas have consequences. Uh, and, and to the point of changing a society, you know, how, how we how we see this unfolding over the last oh golly few decades, uh, 
it, it, it's in front of us. You know, you can't escape if you're if you're willing to see it. You can't escape it <laughs> once you've seen it, uh, it. It's always there. But I'm going to read you a quote from Arthur C. Clarke, his book Childhood's End, because I think it really encapsulates just simply the 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 power of of how to manipulate. And he wrote this. I think he wrote Childhood's End back in like '53 or '54, somewhere in that time frame. It's a very interesting book. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke was was a uh, 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 how to describe him. He he was a prolific science fiction author, but he also had a, a, a foot firmly within the camp of of science and had developed uh, orbital mathematical uh, equations for, for satellite trajectories and, and was really a fascinating individual involved in the, in the production and the first development of radar systems during World War II. But he, this is what he wrote in his book, Childhood's End. 50 years is ample time in which to change the world and its people almost beyond recognition. All that is required for the task are a sound knowledge of social engineering, a clear sight of the intended goal, and power. He was right. Shane, <laughs> he was absolutely right on that one. Because, I mean, okay, I was born in 1968. If I look back on my itty-bitty 55 years of living, um, the remarkable change that's happened, and it's not just simply because of the, of, of the change in technology. There's a far more important than the change of technology is a change in worldview, a change in attitude, a change in values, a change in what was understood to be normal, a change in ethics. It's all been flipped. I mean, you see this progressing through time too, and you got to do it so subtle that people almost don't notice. Because if you if you just all of a sudden threw somebody into like what we perceive as entertainment society now, they would instantly know that like there's something off about it. But when you do it progressively through time, people don't notice. So like you go back to the '60s, and we were talking about this a little bit before the show, but like almost like the flip of like gender roles, where back in the '60s, um, you know, men started growing long hair. Uh, you mentioned that like women wearing jeans, things like that. That's when that progression first started, and then you go into like the 80s for example and then you have all of these guys that are essentially like dr dressing in drag and talking about having uh intercourse with underage girls and that was just the rock and roll life so it's acceptable it's fine it's fun and then you get into the 90s and i was talking about how i feel like that was the breakdown of men in general where men were depressed and didn't know what to do with themselves so that's why there was such an upspike in like drug use and a lot of these like rock stars dying at the time and i mean even connecting with that too that could have been the start of where like the satanic stuff deeply within music started because that's when you started having artists like Marilyn Manson, for example, where they started really bringing in this like dark, dark shock rock. Cause of course there was some stuff in the past. I mean, there was like, you know, um, Alice Cooper, for example, but it wasn't to the level that it really started hitting when it got to like the nineties. And then you get into the two thousands and then you have that satanic principle that's starting to mix in with almost like the eighties idea about like men being like partly like glamorous. So that's where you first started seeing these like, you know, as they would term it back in the day, like metrosexual guys, which were like the guys who were very like upkept about making sure they had like pretty spiked up hair, like all that kind of stuff. And then now you get into this whole thing where like essentially the men are acting like the women and the women are acting like the men. And, you know, you have guys now that are just like super soft, like feminine. Um, they just don't have any kind of push. Like I was even talking to my girlfriend about this, about like, not that I'm an aggressive person by any means, but like the average male now, like I'm not a big guy, but if I went at any of these people, they wouldn't know how to react. They wouldn't know what to do. 
And then in turn, on the other side of it, you see these women and they all have like really short hair now. That's like the thing. And I was talking to you about it before the show about the whole idea about every girl seems to have this popular thing or they all have the septum ring. And at least for me, when I see a septum ring, the first thing I associate it with is a bull. So that's a masculine, very, very masculine energy, a very angry masculine energy. So now you're looking at the average man and the average woman, and you're seeing the woman through a male lens with the short hair and having the bull ring, which again makes is a very aggressive masculine thing. And then you have the men that are on the side of just being like the wishy-washy, like, Oh, it's okay. Like, don't worry about it. Like they have no like push or drive anymore. So they're starting to like essentially flip the gender roles, but in turn doing so now you're making it so that guys aren't confident enough to even be able to talk to women anymore. So you're making it so that like all of these, all of the girls have this whole idea that they're, you know, the bad bitch mentality for lack of better words. And so they think that they're better than every single guy and every single guy doesn't think he's comparable to that girl. So now you have this thing where people don't know how to interact with each other. And in sen- in turn, that's again, a form of like manipulation in the aspect of now that nobody has any defined roles. They don't know where to be. They want to be able to be in a camp. So then people start getting into the whole woke agenda of stuff where, you know, they can't be happy with who they are anymore. But if they progress and they change their gender to another thing, then all of a sudden they're stunning and brave and everybody's behind them and everybody's backing them up. And everybody's just looking for this pat on the back. And you're kind of talking about it early with the Freemason stuff that it's all about a pat on the back. And you see, again, this model happening through society um, or even in like business, for example, um, you know, you're a cutthroat evil person realistically, but you get rewarded in business and then you get looked at like you're the good guy in business. It's all a mix match form of manipulation so that everybody thinks that they're getting a pat on the back. And in turn, they feel that they can be comfortable sitting in a camp. So then they'll do these drastic unrealistic things just to be able to feel like they can actually be proud of who they are because they try to make it now so that if you're just an average normal person, like there's nothing to be proud of. So like you're looked down at on society and you know, people aren't going to pat you on the back until you did a good job, unless you're doing all this progressive stuff that obviously is hurting society more than it's helping society. Right. And so now we look to the, and dealing with what you just described, so now we look to the crowd for our sense of identity and purpose. We look to the crowd for our, for our sense of knowledge and even our individuality, what that looks like. We want to make sure it fits within the, the, uh, the accepted, whatever the accepted new fad or the new norm is. And so we throw our individuality, our real individuality away to be part of something that's more collective, even in the name of diversity, we we throw it away to to assimilate with whatever the diverse new new flavor of the day is. You know, it's a form of crowd gnosis, where the crowd is what gives us our knowledge. It gives us our our orthodoxy. Um, in in the process of what you just described, the thought that that struck me, Shane, was just how soft we have become, just how weak. We have actually become, as 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 we no longer uh, consider what is what is true or valuable or normal, um, and, and so then all other uh, you know uh, uh, all other ends of the spectrum are, are going to are going to fade away and, and, and be devalued as well. Um, strength, kindness, love, forgiveness, all those other attributes, grace, mercy. It, it, listen, everything's up for grabs, it seems. 
And that means that even those beautiful and beneficial things that we look upon and recognize as being important to society, law and order, real law, not regulation, there's a difference between law and regulation, real law, real order, all of this, um, we, 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 have, we have set ourselves up, or we have been set up, uh, to, to see a radical change in how we behave towards each other. And honestly, that to me is, is probably the, the more frightening side of this kind of conversation because the government will do what a government will do as it battles for its own ascendancy. Uh, you know, cultural influencers will do, what, will do what they do. But then how all this plays out when I have to meet my neighbors and, and the people, you know, uh, on the street that you end up dealing with. Um, you know, now everybody's kind of on eggshells regarding, regarding certain topics, uh, woke, woke issues. So it's interesting how, how, how important this really becomes. Uh, but this is, this is to me the, the, the result of, 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 a, of a soft culture uh, that, that I see having, it'll hit a roadblock. It'll have to hit, a, it, hits, it has to hit a dead end. Um, an interesting little little study in this, and it's just something something anybody can do with YouTube, is is the U.S. Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, put out a number of promotional videos, uh, recruitment videos, and it's 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 all they're they're woke videos. Uh, their whole purpose of joining the the army was was to affirm their identities and affirm this and this is where they feel comfortable and and this is where they feel that they can belong and and you, you're watching this and it's it's affirming uh, same sex it's affirming you know the woke ideology and then you watch a Russian recruitment video and it's regardless of what's actually happening on the battlefield and sometimes I'm not sure well not sometimes I know we're not really sure which sides of the story are really true or not. But regardless, the Russian recruitment video was, was steel and fire and men of, you know, men staring you down and muscle and men pushing the limit. And then you look at a, a, a Chinese military recruitment video and it's, it's battleships and it's fighter planes and it's men marching in, in, in unison, and it gives that projection. They both gave this projection of strength. And then I return back to the, to the U.S. Department of Defense videos, the recruitment videos from the last few years, and I'm going, oh, my word, there's a soft, we want the soft touch. And so we're, I, I see all this as a culture in decline, unfortunately. Um, and and it, it, it really compels me then to consider, okay, what do I need to do on an individual level? How can I make a difference? And I know it'd be before your conversation, I'm not sure, Shane, how much your audience might know about your own life. Uh, but for us, we've homeschooled our children. And I think that that's, that's part of that. The answer to what's happening is, is to take control of your own knowledge, to take control of your own education, and, and to really invest in your children's education. If all of a sudden they're in the public school, you still have to invest. In fact, now you have to invest even more because you have to unlearn what they've just been learning all day long um, and, and, and try, to, uh, try to keep them uh, you know, on, a, on a straight path. But yeah, so we're living in an age where the culture has changed so quickly, so rapidly, and, and the, the value structures of, the, of, of our day has, uh, are in the process of right now being collapsed and rewritten. I don't like where this is going. Yeah, me either. I mean, it's it's all about 
essentially getting to a point of a grand reset because i mean you see this with like maoism for example that they did this whole idea where they separate the the current generation from the previous generations by making the ideas of the new generation so radically different from the previous generation that in turn the new generation starts attacking the old generation and then you can usher in this whole entire new idea of thinking and completely destroy any of the past idea of thinking and in turn by doing so you make it so that you can completely shape the culture to whatever you want it to be because at that point it's cut off from the past and they start seeing it everybody from the past as being a negative thing to the point where like for example like in china with mao um you had kids that were telling on their parents for having their different beliefs and different systems into things and i mean you're kind of starting to see that now where it's like you send your kids to school and they're projecting a certain method of thinking onto them to the point where you hear these stories about, um, you know, they'll have like the trans story time with kids and stuff. And now you have these young kids that are like correcting their parents on pronouns and stuff. And then when they get older, I feel like that's going to turn into a more aggressive version of that where they're like, Oh, these people don't get it. They just don't understand how we are. And then there's going to be this complete divide between the two generations. And then in turn, by doing that, once you push out the old generation, the new generation, will usher into the new method of thinking, the new religion, because they're in that in-between point. And I mean, even connecting into a little bit more deep, like mechanical concepts connecting to it. Um, if you start pushing everybody into this whole idea about flipping genders, and then you turn them into essentially, um, for lack of better terms, like, like they're not really either gender at that point. Cause they have some, cosmetic parts put on from the one they want to become but biologically they're still the other one um then it, it you're going to make it so you're, you're almost like this uncomfortable like half breed where you're not really comfortable with who you are because you never were able to fully transition because you can't do that because you're biologically something else so then they're going to say okay well in this reality, it's not working out properly. So if you go into this virtual reality, then if you want to be a boy today, you can be a boy today. You want to be a girl today, you can be a girl today. It's flawless. Nobody can tell the difference because you're within a computer program. And then once you're in that type of like program, you're in that virtual reality, then they have a full control of everybody in their method of thinking, everything that they're seeing. And it makes it so that um, essentially like you can, you put everybody into this system and then once they're in that system, they can't come back out because then they can't deal with normal society. And you almost see that too within like people not being able to communicate with each other. Um, we we're kind of talking about a little bit earlier in the show about like you going outside and possibly worrying about offending your neighbor. And once you've divided everybody into the aspect where they're not comfortable talking to each other, they're not able to talk about certain topics, then it makes it so that everybody's so disconnected from each other that in turn, then you're able to manipulate people individually because people aren't rising up as a group anymore because there's nobody thinking together about how this idea is wrong because they make all these topics so fringe that nobody can talk about it and then they can't get anywhere with it. So in turn, it gets pushed into the back burner so then people stop thinking about it and then it's just a new method of thinking without any type of discussion to have actually gotten to this point it's just this is how we think but there's no build up a reasoning why and the average person doesn't for whatever reason require a reason why and you see this through a lot of the covid stuff that they just blindly will follow stuff without actually digging into how they got to that point and you know humans through history that's how we've Adjust, that's how we've gotten to the growth that we've gotten to now is because of understanding the steps in the process. But once you start eliminating the steps in the process and just throwing into this new method of thinking, then 
essentially nobody's thinking for themselves and they're requiring a higher power to tell them how to think because they start losing the ability to actually figure out puzzles and get to a point on their own. Yeah. And to, to the, to the, the Maoist model, uh, the importance of that is, and you Ray references is youth as shock troops, youth as shock troops in enforcing the new normal, the new value, the new, the new, um, whatever the, the, you know, the, the new messianic tone, um, Really, what you're seeing here, and what you've just described, is is almost like a venturi. Uh, it, it's it's a collection point, a choke point, and so information has become choked. I, I mean, the the great thing about the internet, when I was back on the web, boy, I, I jumped in early. I was an early adopter. I was on uh, late '93, early '94. Back then, it was it was kind of the wild west. We didn't have pictures yet. There were you know we didn't have videos really. There was bulletin boards and archies and pings and all kinds of stuff that nobody even knows about now but it's interesting to see the the progression of the internet it was supposed to be this amazing vehicle for information the free flow of information freedom would be released or pardon me information would be released to be free we've done the exact opposite we've now through a handful of 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 gatekeepers created choke points venturis and, and pushed out on the other side of that in lockstep with our education, in lockstep with our cultural influencers, we have pushed through the new shock troops. We pushed through the new youth armies. Um, and education and information uh, that's restricted in that sense will, will then produce in, in the mind uh, a, a new sense of purpose a new sense of belonging. And so that's what you fight for because that's the normal. That's the, you know, the, the ideal that's been presented to you. Listen, the very first, because I've been to oodles and oodles of, of different global events in, in my research work. Uh, the very first one I attended was back in 1997 and it was on education. It was called the Global Citizenship 2000 Youth Congress. And for three days in Vancouver, British Columbia, School teachers, school children, educators, uh, social agents came together to work through what a new philosophy of curriculum would look like. So for me, I cut my teeth in terms of going to, to events, doing boots on the ground research. I really cut my teeth going first to that event and then watching as Robert Mueller, the former United Nations uh, official, introduced his World Corps curriculum to, the, to, to those attending. And that was going to be our model for developing a new a new paradigm for education for a curriculum, and it really was more or less about affirming uh, that you would be good social justice warriors. You would be fighting to save Mother Earth. You'd be fighting to actualize the universe. You yourself would would would, would uh, become divine. It was it was incredible the stuff that was coming through during during that event. He had the schools, uh, the different schools that were in attendance, do little uh, projects or or plays to 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 kind of model what they how they would implement the uh, the curriculum change in their particular schools. Um, one of the schools that was there, 
ended up doing like this little one act play. There was a girl who got up on a table. She had pine boughs in her hands. I, I never, it never occurred to me where she got the pine, pine boughs, but, but until later on, I realized she must've walked outside of the, of the, of the building, snapped them off the trees and then brought them in so much for being environmentally conscious. But she <laughs> sat on this table with the pine boughs in her hands and declared herself Mother Earth. And they were all a bunch of girls, schoolgirls. And then each of the girls in turn laid their hands on Mother Earth and confessed their environmental sins. I will not wear re uh, leather, pardon me, I wear leather shoes and that is not sustainable. Um, I don't recycle enough. My parents don't recycle enough. The one that irked me, irked me beyond belief because of just the audacity of it, one of the girls said that my dad's uh, car uh, burns oil and it's running rough. And then they returned around the circle again, laying their hands back on Mother Earth after she's just said, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. And then they confessed to how they would fix the problem. I will wear something sustainable on my feet, not leather. I will recycle more. I will push my mom and dad to recycle more. I will call the police if my dad doesn't get the car fixed by a certain date. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, you got a little Maoist uh, shock troop right there. hi yay yay And going into kind of what I was saying, too, about people not actually doing the process to get to the point. People are pushing for this whole idea about electric cars, for example, not realizing the power source that you need to get to these electric cars. And just a prime example, you see construction sites where they're using, like, electric uh like vehicles, but they're still using a gas generator to produce power for these vehicles. So it's a placebo effect. Like nobody's actually doing any type of like research to actually get to their answers. And in turn, it's like we live in a society where we're so used to instant answers. So we don't actually have to seek the answers. It's just a matter of just asking the question and getting an instant answer. And when you do that, and when you have things such as the internet, you can completely control the narrative and change stuff in it. It's not tangible. It's not, it's, it's not a book. You don't have like a solid copy of it in front of you that the text can't be changed at any given point. You know, the internet's on a server. Anybody can change any information on the internet. And just like we were talking about doing stuff super duper subtle, all you have to do is start changing little pieces of history here and there on the internet. And then when people look up instant answers on Google, even you don't only realistically have to do it on Google, you could completely rewrite history through the means of internet because everybody thinks that all this information is on the internet and it's never going to change, but you can go back and edit a web page whenever you feel like editing it. So constantly information can be changed to fit a narrative and with nobody actually thinking to get to that point, they have instant answers and then they're running passionately off these instant answers. And it's not again, helping society as a whole at all. And even going into like the thing that you were saying with uh, the whole Mother Earth thing, um, we're talking about the new age of ushering in new religions. Um, for me, at least, I mean, that sounds like a pretty pagan concept that, you know, you're talking about like these different like spiritual entities, like there's multiple spiritual entities that are almost like gods around us. So, I mean, I feel like it's almost like a like a breakdown where, you know, you had like your one single God and then you push into this new era where there's all these multiple gods and nobody really knows what to believe. Everything's kind of up in the air. And then all of a sudden when nothing really makes sense to anybody, then you have this new person come in and they're like, boom, this is all the answers that you need. And again, that could be this like satanic principle or this like antichrist type figure. And everybody would be manipulated into thinking, 
how he's thinking because there's again somebody that's giving them definite answers instead of all of these different spiritual beings being like the answer could be this the answer could be that the answer could be this because they're pushing people's religious views into that aspect because they know that people's minds aren't capable of thinking if they're not getting an instant straight answer. So if you all of a sudden have somebody come that has these instant straight answers, like people are used to thinking and being able to look stuff up on the internet, you know, everybody's going to start blindly following that person because then they don't have to do the thinking themselves because they're incapable of doing it at that point. Well, it's the presenting of a new myth. You know, we have a new myth being laid out before us. You can be, you can be a global citizen. You can be, you, you, you now can work for, you, you have a purpose. The purpose here is to save the earth. The purpose is, is, is world peace or world order or unity. But there's a myth that's being uh, played out right before us. And I'm not talking about myth in the sense of a fable. That's different. Or a fairy tale. That's different yet again. But myth acts as an information technology. It acts as a paradigm-shifting form of information. It's, it can be a story. But more importantly, it's presenting a worldview. And so from the 60s on, we have had this new myth that's been unfolding. We've stripped out the old, we've thrown away the Judeo-Christian ethos, and now we have to have a new one. And so that fits with what you just described. We need, we need somebody, someone at some point to stand up and say, I'm it. I've got your answers. Um, to that end, allow me to read something to you. Okay, when I was at the United Nations Millennium Forum back in the year 2000, one of the documents I was given, I've got it here on my desk. This is not a UN document, but it was being uh, distributed um, during the United Nations Millennium Forum. The, the title of the document, and there's probably no more than just a handful of these left in the world, is called Transformation of the World. Mankind on the threshold of a transition to a qualitatively new level of civilization. So here's the, uh, here's the interesting line. Small doubt that the world does need a civilized coordinator in international relations and in settling global problems. More than that, this coordinator must be a stabilizing factor. Actually, the last-ditch authority on the earth. He must win confidence of each man and each nation. People must be stark sure that this coordinator would solve any problem in a just and humane way. And one should be sure that in him he would find understanding and sympathy, that he would treat any nation as his own son, and that he is indeed, indeed the last resort. And the man should convince his terrestrial brothers therein by his practical deeds. Can the world community do without a coordinator? Definitely cannot. Sounds to me like exactly textbook definition of what the Antichrist would theoretically be. <laughs> I know, I know. And, you know, the, and the document's got a pic, couple pictures. They've got this little cartoon, not cartoon, but like a silhouette kind of a picture of a king uh, metering out power and justice and holding the balance uh, uh, through a world constitution. Very, very interesting. But uh, yes, yes, we need that coordinator, don't we? I'm kind of curious what the combining factor would be because they have some everybody's views so different from each other that I feel like they're intentionally laying some kind of groundwork where there is a common ground between every single person 
and nobody's aware of it at this time, but all of these people that are manipulating everybody, they're fully aware of like what this one connecting thread is, and they're going to use that to their advantage because they're essentially trying to burn the world so that everybody has to look up to somebody, and they want everybody to be infighting with each other constantly so that, again, they're looking over here and worrying about all of these like social issues, worrying about fighting about all of this stuff, when realistically they're actually moving the bigger pieces over here, and... I, again, I want to know what this what this combining factor is going to be because it seems like everybody's so far off in their views. Like I don't understand what the combining factor would be, but at the same time, I feel like it's it's really obvious and like right in front of our face what the, what this well, person's going to present. Part of it is the idea of unity and diversity. So we 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 can have a, we can unify around, let's say a a global principle, a planetary principle. And I'm going to use the principle of oneness as the example. Oneness being a philosophical position, religious position that ultimately says man, God, and nature are ultimately the same. There is no distinction between the three realms. Whereas the Christian position, the Judeo-Christian position is no, there are distinctions. God is separate. He is distinct. Man is created special. He is, is, is part of nature but still unique within the natural world. And then there's nature proper. Um, and so unity and diversity says that our unity will bring about our oneness, but we can be diverse in how this oneness is experienced. And that, div that diversity will create lots of friction points, no question, piles and piles of friction points, unbelievable amounts of friction points. It's going to even give us wars because it does. But at some point we will experience a, a unifying factor because we something will have something will have emerged that will force us to unify it will force us to come together it will force us to gel in this idea of oneness so probably the best the best model of what that would be um i could see that as being global war uh, some people say, well, maybe it's UFOs. It could be. It could be a, an extraterrestrial um, unveiling. But I think that's almost a little bit too, um, how, did, how would I say this? Almost a little bit too, 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 too easy to go wrong um, in terms of, of keeping the narrative going. But a global war threat uh, has that possibility. If all of a sudden atoms split over world cities, yeah, the world will scream for anything to save them. Anybody or any king or any global coordinator to save them. Uh, that's just a thought. It's a possibility. I was at a, a World Federalist um, Congress back in, I've got to think, 2012, where and, and the World Federalist Movement is the, the largest pro-world government lobby group. It's effectively uh, the organization that has been working for, for many decades to push the United Nations into forming its own version of, of, of global government or world government. And the, at the 2012 uh, Congress, uh, it was very clear that uh, we have to unite before we destroy each other. But ironically, in the process of uniting, we may have to destroy each other destroy the less desirables as they would word them and i mean just mm -hmm. to throw in another possible theory on this and it's something that i've been kind of trying to figure out myself why there's been such a push for this um you see this push of like psychedelic drugs for example like cannabis for example is still you know in the field of being like a psychedelic drug um you see like decriminalization of mushrooms and stuff 
And you're talking about this like one wholeness and everybody like interconnecting. And I'm almost curious if they're trying to do it almost through like the means of people taking psychedelics and having this different method of thinking. And it goes back to like the sixties when all of this stuff started happening and ironically connecting another dot with that, um, that they were like, all right, psychedelic drugs are out and about. And obviously that, you know, the government was doing experiments with things like MK ultra, things like that. So they were fully aware of like what the potential of these things were. And they were almost like throwing them out into the culture and being like, Oh no, those are illegal. Don't do those because they knew that if they just put them out there and said, do these, that nobody's going to do them. They're going to be like, why, why would the, why would the government tell me to do this? So they threw them out there and said, no, those are bad. Don't do those because they want everybody to start connecting and having this universal method of thought. And now that that has progressed and the taboo is starting to go away with it, now they're just full blown legalizing it. So in the turn of that, they're capitalizing off it. They're making money off of everybody doing it. They're also having a more docile culture as far as like, you know, all the new age cannabis smokers, um, because, you know, they're all coming in now that it's legal and the stuff's way stronger than it used to be back in the day. So, you know, they're essentially coming in now, never smoking before and smoking like the strongest of, of stuff that's around. And even same with like the psychedelics and stuff, you know, people that would never even consider doing psychedelics as they're starting to get like decriminalized. Now they're starting to be like, oh yeah, no, it's okay. I can do these things. And in turn, by doing those things, obviously people are doing psychedelics. They start going into like the whole hippie movement and stuff. They don't want to fight. They're all about oneness. So I'm almost kind of curious if they're going to start trying to basically make that universal thread that connects everybody, these vices and these universe, these psychedelic drugs, because, you know, whether you're trans, you're straight, you're whatever, you know, everybody can enjoy cannabis together whether you're you know no matter what field no matter what background you come from everybody could could theoretically enjoy psychedelics so i'm kind of curious if the whole push and legalization of all of that actually does have a component in this whole idea of connecting everybody and having like a global reset of people that have this whole new method of thinking but they're not using it in the aspect of the tool that it was intended to be and used by like ancient cultures they're putting it under like the category of like a recreational drug so that people aren't attached to the spiritual aspect of these plants and different things. Um, and they're more so just connected with the like, Oh, we're all one, like kind of like the hippie mindset of stuff. And in turn, again, they're not going to go to war over that. They're all going to interconnect when somebody comes with breaching this message of peace and saying, let's protect the planet. Let's do this. Let's all be one together. And I don't think necessarily this antichrist is going to come in with, you know, the iron fist, uh, coming in to destroy everybody i actually think he's going to come in with this hippie mentality of everybody get along everybody be happy everybody just do these things everybody there's no reason for war because then it, they don't have to fight the culture if the culture is going to blindly follow them with no type of you know no type of fight back against it because everybody's already in this hippie mindset well, yeah, it's a promise of peace then isn't it that, that's what it becomes what's interesting is, is psychedelics is is I mean, right now we're in a psychedelic renaissance. There's no question about it. The, the issue of psychedelics is super important to this conversation and super important to understanding the culture shift that's been, that's been in play for a long time. Um, the power of psychedelics, and I've never been a psychedelic user. I'm not experienced, as Jimi, Jimi Hendrix would say. Uh, but besides, of, you know, <laughs> that aside, I, I've spent quite a bit of time interacting with the psychedelic culture. I've been to, to psychedelic workshops at Burning Man. I, I intentionally go to, to hear what MAPS is all about and, and what they're doing. And then in, in diving into, the, into what happened in the 1960s, uh, what strikes me about psychedelics, and Timothy Leary brings this out when he talks about the importance of set and setting, 
And if you don't have the set and setting right when you're doing, let's say, LSD, um, the, you could have the possibility of, of, of experiencing a bad trip. So set and setting is 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 a very important. That was a big a big part of the, of of the mantra of that of that era. But what that pointed to was the power of suggestibility. And that psychedelics is a powerful suggestible suggestible gateway. It opens up the the realm of suggestibility in a profound profound way. And, and there is a worldview shift that comes with that. A, a a very important worldview shift. There's a paradigm transition that occurs, and it definitely there's definitely a move towards that sense of oneness. So, I, I, I wrote something in my book on this uh, at the end of, of chapter twelve, and I'd like to read it because it's just a speculation. That's all this is, Shane, just a speculation. But it, it kind of goes to where we've we've had this conversation. An interesting speculation can be extrapolated, and I stress that this is conjecture only. Could a worldwide spiritual experience be the catalyst for global unity? If so, how might this be achieved? Maybe a psychedelic agent, pardon me, might a psychedelic agent be designed to induce human oneness? And could this agent be in the form of a mark, a personal identifier permanently placed on the hand or forehead? This mark, a tangible sign of global citizenship, like a digital loyalty card, would be needed for buying and selling. Possibly this mark could be tailored to interact with one's genetics and brain chemistry, unlocking a stimulant that heightens perception and induces flow, like a manageable global upper that everyone experiences together and no one wants to be without or opt out of. There would be no spectators in the networked planet. Everybody would be a participant in the global myth of a brave new world. Maybe this transhuman elixir would be called Soma. The above represents a techno-pharma, socio-political, spiritual wholeness, a total management and participant experience. It's a troubling speculation. And the reason I wrote that was because those are the kinds of, of things you end up pulling out of the conversations that you're hearing when you go to the Parliament of World Religions, uh, and I've been to, to three of them, and we're hopefully going to the, to, the, to the next one happening this summer in Chicago. Um, when you're attending different workshops at, at that venue, when I'm at Burning Man, when I'm going to different places, uh, listening to, to, to the psychedelic community, all of a sudden you're going, my goodness, there is the profound possibility of using the power of psychedelic suggestibility to reinforce that feeling that we're now all one, we're all now interconnected. And then when you marry that into the realm of, of our internet, uh, our, our metaverse, our new virtual reality, you've got all kinds of things that potentially could be popping with this, this uh, commingling. I mean, when it comes to uh, like psychedelics in particular, too, I mean, when you were talking about like the power of suggestibility, too, you know, if you wanted everybody to be peaceful, it's time and setting that you could get everybody to reconnect through this. But at the same time, though, if you have people where they're regularly taking these psychedelic drugs and you put them into a method of fear, be it through specific wording in the news or controlling a narrative, then you could essentially have a peaceful culture quick flip in a bad trip and turn into an aggressive culture. And in turn, I mean, you could even use that for like, uh, you know, 
decreasing some of the population theoretically, or you could even use it to essentially make people freaked out to the point where like they'll go to war with somebody else. Like, you know, we could have all of these peaceful countries. And if there's one specific one where they have like a different method of thinking than the rest, then all they have to do is set the setting right for everybody else around the world to start fearing them because of a bad trip and the power of suggestibility. And you could essentially manipulate the entire world to all attack one specific thing at a time. And in turn, you could start taking out groups of people through fear being used through the power of suggestion using psychedelics, too. Yeah, you know, fear is a really powerful motivator. No question about it. Um, this, is, this is the stuff of, of making, you, uh, you know, a dystopian movie. But unfortunately, uh, dystopian movies end up kind of, you know, shadowing or paralleling what's happening in culture already. Um so yeah, it, this is it, it, this is an interesting conversation because uh, we we both know. I mean, we, you you watch the culture, you watch how how this is unfolding. I watch it, uh, and and the conversation around psychedelics has just exploded with interest from microdosing uh, to to ayahuasca. You know, it's just uh, uh, incredible how much it's shifted in the last ten years or so. Um, and, and I, I, I can certainly see, I can certainly see that there is uh, uh, something very important to, to this subject, uh, something very important in terms of, of how to shift, not, not about shifting, it's about how to shift the culture. And I think psychedelics is, is, plays a very prominent role, and a role that I'm still wrestling with, with trying to understand. I mean, even connecting into some other principles too, that all kind of intermixed into the same thing. Uh, you start getting into like heavy meditation and it starts having some of the same effects as psychedelic drugs. So then you start digging into um, kind of like this new view of how they have like all the spirituality through like, again, like the kind of hippie movement through meditation where people may not even be uh, taking psychedelics necessarily, but they still be might be reaching that same mindset and in turn still progressing this message. And when it gets into like, like pagan views, for example, it may not be all based on psychedelics necessarily, but if you're doing different forms of meditation, you're still getting to that same state. Um, it could still, again, be progressing this whole idea of like a psychedelic movement without even necessarily having to use the psychedelic drugs, but rather in turn finding other ways to still get people into the psychedelic mindset. Yeah. 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 Where, where we can be manipulated, uh, you know, in, in terms of that neurochemical balance. Um, I mean, we think of what has transpired, of course, in the last three years and just the introduction of, of novel ways of, of combating um, a, a, a virus. Uh, at this point, I am just curious as to how all this will unfold because boy, I think we've entered some, some really interesting territory. And I mean, even connecting past that too, if you even want to get into like the more biblical aspect of things, um, like us progressing as a culture too, um, you, you know, people may not necessarily believe that, you know, the devil or this like dark force or whatever may, may actually be an existing thing, but in turn, you still might be falling into the ideas of it. But, but, you know, we, from a biblical point, from a biblical perspective, it, it makes sense to, to, to see where the world is going at this point right now. I mean, it gives us a, a bit of an, and, and, you know, like I said, right in the very beginning, my, my biases are, are transparent. I am a Christian. I hold to a Christian view. And, and 
scripture is very clear that that as we progress that there is a a, a change that takes place and we become we become uh, people who love less. Uh, we 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 pervert. We flip things around. Uh, Romans one is a great example of this. In Romans one, Paul is is writing and he is saying, essentially that as we worship and serve creation, which is in essence, or actually the essence of a pagan worldview, when we worship and serve creation instead of the Creator, then and right there you have that distinction. Uh, then God gives us over to our debased thinking. In other words, hey, if if uh, you want to serve and worship idols, um, I will allow you to do so. And and the consequences of that being your very actions. And and I mean, my goodness, I've I've documented and watched what has transpired in the last fifty years from the late nineteen sixties on, uh, and you can definitely see that this. This idea, this cause and effect, walks hand in hand as we worship and serve creation, which we do, we have done. Um, when that becomes our focal point, when that becomes our purpose, and that that really is an inward perspective that points back to us because we're still part of creation, though we're unique within it. We're still part of it. It points back. It points back to us. It says that we ultimately are uh, the god of our Babel, of our tower. Um, there is a so, uh, you know a definite social sexual change that has that has transpired. The two go hand in hand. We want to quickly switch gears. I uh, bring this back a little bit around to the idea of, uh, of of just where medication can go. And 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 I, I want to read to you a quote. I pulled this up because it was something that was just kind of ringing in the back of my mind. Uh, Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was uh, one of the leading British philosophers, actually one of the leading world philosophers uh, of the last century, and, and he was uh, very, very involved as a humanist and, and uh, wrote the, he helped write the first humanist manifesto. This is what he said in his, in his book, The Impact of Science on Society, back in 1953. I think this kind of fits with this idea, too, of, of what, what is that unifying thing. This is what he thought the unifying the unifying method would be. I do not pretend that birth control is the only way in which population can be kept from increasing. There are others. War, as I remarked a moment ago, has hitherto been disappointing in this respect, but perhaps bacteriological war may prove more effective. If a black death could be spread throughout the world once in every generation, survivors could procreate freely without making the world too full. There would be nothing in this to offend the conscience of the devout or to restrain the ambitions of nationalists. The state of affairs might be somewhat unpleasant, but what of that? Really high-minded people are indifferent to happiness, especially other people's. A scientific world society cannot be stable unless there is a world government. I mean, that ends up connecting into like the whole idea with, uh, I mean, COVID specifically seemed like it was attacking like the elderly, like they're trying to almost like knock the top off of the system so that in turn, like you were kind of saying, people would be able to like free produce because they're knocking off like what they see as not contributing to society anymore because realistically they're paying them to exist and they're not really like a functioning member of society. 
So, I mean, you can even see this progressively through, you know, all the stuff that's in our foods, um, that it almost seems like they're trying to make it so that they shorten the life expectancy to the aspect of pretty much you're born, you're raised up to go through the schooling system that they train you to think a specific way. And then you do your job until you get to a certain age. And at that point, they kind of just hope that you die off at that point because you're not contributing to society anymore. And theoretically, every couple generations, if they were able to produce some type of, again, like disease or something that is able to kind of just skim that bit off the top, then it gets rid of what they would see, you know, as like the dead weight and keep around the people that are the ones that they're using to progress what they're trying to do as far as society goes. Yeah, I, I know. I know there's uh, um, when I read that quote from from Russell and, and it just you know, it hit me, it resonates um, because it kind of connects a lot of these dots. Here, here we have, uh, and it's placed within the context of we're going to be able to procreate. We, you know, we, we can now all have unfettered sex again because we're not going to you know, <laughs> overload the, the overload the planet. Um, just bizarre stuff. But again, ideas have consequences and, uh, I, I read this and I'm going, my word, this this fits with the models that we see. And it also gives us a, a glimpse into the mindset. And he's really, I think, he's right on with this when he says, really high-minded people are indifferent to happiness, especially other people's. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty much says it, right? <laughs> And I mean, even connecting into another possible like pandemic too, you get into like uh, like the whole woke agenda as far as like transhumanism goes and people transitioning and essentially they're sterilizing those people where they can't reproduce. So that's another one. They're knocking even more population oh, yeah. off of it because now they're have this generation of people that can't reproduce and knowing that they can't reproduce, they have to project their message onto other people's kids to further their message because they can't do it to their own kids because they're not capable of having their own kids. That's right. That's right. It is a dehumanizing uh, agenda. It's a dehumanizing movement, isn't it? Because it takes away from, from literally from our future. Yeah. And it even makes it so that, because I mean, the idea that they talk about like a number of population, they try to act like it's all about like, this is how many resources we have. We don't have enough resources for everybody, but realistically, it's not about resources. It was never about resources. It's just that they know that if they keep the population under this number, that it's going to be easier to control because once the population gets too big, then you have the fear of the people actually starting to realize what's going on and then they rise up. But if you keep those numbers below a certain number where it's manageable by you, where if, you know, society decides to flip on you, you could easily take out half of them and say, all right, the remaining survivors listen to me, otherwise we're going to take you out like the rest of them. You know, again, they, they hide it behind this whole green agenda that, you know, we're, we're going to we're going to destroy the world if we don't do all of this stuff. Um, you know, the population, blah, 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 blah. But realistically, they're just trying to get the numbers down so that it's manageable by them to be able to manipulate everybody without having the possibility of having a mass number of people rise up against them. Yeah, 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 I think you're right, especially in terms of, of resources and population, because it's not about that, is it? My goodness, as we've seen the population rise in the last, let's say, 30 to 40 years, we've also seen production rise, we've seen uh, resources uh, rise, we've, we're able to, to match uh, in terms of what is needed. Really, we can. The only thing that's standing in the way is politics and, and, and bureaucracy, Um but in terms of the ability to feed the world, that exists. That really does exist. And regarding being overpopulated, look, I, I live in rural Canada. I live out in the prairies of Canada. My goodness, we've got like 
oodles and oodles of space between our cities. Unbelievable. And I've crisscrossed, Shane, I've crisscrossed your country back and forth. You have massive regions with very little population. When I'm going through central Oregon or in, through Idaho, my goodness, Nebraska, you know, there's a lot of space in this world and uh, a lot of resources. Uh, it really, truly is an incredible planet. Uh, when I when I consider what, uh, you know, uh, even, even just from the biblical account, uh, we, we've got what we need. God, God is the one who sustains us. It's not some nebulous Mother Earth. It's not some bureaucrat in, in the United Nations or, you know, in Brussels. Uh, it's incredible how, how uh, fertile and how many resources we have. Because, I mean, if you take a look at, at, at the conversation that was taking place in the 60s and 70s regarding population control, it was always... We're going to be running out of food. By 1980, we're out of food. By 1990, the world's going to be destroyed. There's going to be no fish stock left in the ocean. Uh, you know, it, it was just utter catastrophe. You know, and I'm not actually making this up. That was the kind of talk that was there. It's all going to end because we're going to run out of resources. Everything's destroyed. We've run over the whole planet. And that, I mean, that was the talk of the 60s and 70s. Hello? Um we have food. And let, I mean, us, let, it, let us feed the world. We do have food. I come from a farm background. We do have food. I mean, in turn with that too, connecting in with the whole like CO2 idea that they're saying that it's destroying the planet. But realistically, like plants thrive off of carbon dioxide. So if anything, having more CO2 in the atmosphere is making it so plants are easy. It's more easy for plants to thrive because essentially that's like their oxygen. So, I mean, it could be the world almost trying to equal itself back out where there may be more CO2 in the atmosphere so that more plants are able to grow and they're able to grow bigger so that there is more food for people. But we're tricking people into thinking that it's a bad thing, not realizing that plants thrive with more CO2. <laughs> oh, but we do realize it. We do know it. Shane, uh, back in, in January, I was in uh, southern Ontario, literally just across the bridge from Detroit in the Windsor-Leamington area. Uh, there's a, a ton of great big greenhouses, 20-acre, 50-acre, 80-acre. I think there was a couple that were over 200 acres in size, massive greenhouses. And I had the opportunity to go and tour one of the farms, and I was talking to the owner as uh, he was showing me the cucumbers and, and, and all the different produce that was being grown under, under glass. And incredible. It was just incredible outfits, multi-million dollar operations. And we ended up talking about CO2 and how much CO2 that they intentionally pump in. And, and he was showing me how that all operated. And it was CO2 rich, CO2 saturated. And he's like, we tell the government, we tell our local government, we tell our provincial government, we try to tell our federal government, look, CO2 is what gives plant life the ability to grow. It's plant food. We intentionally, intentionally saturate CO2 levels to a certain point because, and much higher, much higher than what we have now in our natural environment because it enables better plant growth. It's actually good. Arguments have been made that we are actually CO2 deficient. 
Yeah, I mean, you dig back into like prehistoric times and they had way higher CO2 in the atmosphere and in turn plants got significantly bigger. And what's happening around us is that they're creating this sense of false scarcity. And you see this like uh, with all of the chicken stuff where they're going around and they were killing, they were like burning down all these different chicken uh, producing facilities. Um, it's not that there's not enough supplies, it's that we're destroying them to create false scarcity. And even just going into another attack on that, um, when my son was born, it was around the time when you couldn't get any formula anywhere, but then you were seeing all these crazy videos online of them taking all this formula and dumping it in holes. And again, it's not that we didn't have the product, it's that we're creating false scarcity. And in turn, also getting back into the whole population control concept, that was also a form of population control because people People were worried that they wouldn't be able to give their baby food if they had a kid. So then they were thinking twice again about actually having a kid in the first place. And then directly after that came the thing where you couldn't find diapers anywhere. And that was just another connection into, oh, no, should I even attempt to have kids? And then right after that came the thing where there was uh, not enough birth control around and then a bunch of people were like oh should I even be you know having intercourse in the first place because if I have a kid I'm not going to be able to give it food and do all of this so then they were already decreasing the population off of a bunch of people not wanting to have kids for a three four year period because they're scared that they wouldn't be able to produce anything for their kids and realistically you know obviously every woman is has the ability to produce food for their baby but the way that like hospitals work more often than not it seems like they kind of try to push you away from that and into using like formula or they try to like scare you into like oh you may not be able to produce enough so you know you might have to use formula so it just scares people into thinking that you have to live off of the system in order to feed your baby when realistically you naturally have the thing to feed your baby right with you but we've separated that and made it almost like taboo where like you know, there was the whole thing about like women feeding their babies in public, things like that, because people are like over, like want to overly sexualize it when that was never what it was about in the first place. It was all just an attack on, again, people thinking twice about having, actually having kids in the first place because they were scared of all the stipulation that comes with like the natural feeding method of having the kid. And they were insisted on being attached to the system, giving them the food that they would have to give their kid. Yeah. You know, imposed scarcity really forces us, uh, to start thinking about how how do we how do we ensure our own self sufficiency uh, as, as much as is feasible for for you know for each individual, uh, I think that that's been something that has has been missed in our culture because our culture has been more or less about hey you're all part of the group or you're part of whatever this tribe is, but the idea of self sufficiency is really important when we consider the idea of imposed scarcity, and not just self sufficiency in, in the fact that I can grow my own food. Um, if you have that ability to do so, or if you got the, if you got the the location that you know to, to to make that work, but more than that, even to develop your own skills, your your own skills, so that you can uh, uh, work with the tools that you have, uh, knowing your networks, understanding who can do what, who you can trust, all of that's really important. I had a conversation uh, with a, a handful of pastors uh, earlier this year. We we're talking about what their experiences were with, of course, the pandemic and, and what COVID all did. And uh, one, of the, one of the big questions that popped up, and, and we're looking, you know, the conversation was around practical solutions, practical ideas, because they recognize that, look, we can just have another, another edict signed, another regulation signed, another mandate that comes out for who knows what. And all of a sudden, poof, we've got these same problems again. 
oh, because now we got this crazy model there uh, that the government will, will be able to, to you know, we have we have precedent. That's what we have. And so one of the one of the conversations was we need to know who in our own church or in and you know to your listeners' point, it may be your own family or your own networks of friends who has certain skills. Who's a welder. Uh, who, who, who's really good with carpentry, who's good with plumbing. Uh, and so they were even talking about, we need, you know, we need to maybe make even a binder uh, of, of our church members uh, who has certain skills, who has certain resources. And not that that, that becomes our go-to, but in the, in the case of, of emergency, everybody will be on the same page. Everybody knows uh, the skills that we have within our community. We know what resources are at our fingertips. We know who we can call for expertise. We know who we can trust. So that when we have imposed scarcity or when we have imposed regulations, mandates, lockdowns, whether it's for COVID or COVID 2.0 or COVID plus climate or whatever the, you know, whatever the, the excuse is, we have the ability to, to, to maintain some sense of functionality. So I think that there's actually, there's practical. These kinds of conversations um, force us eventually to look at practical solutions. Even though we might not be able to change the culture around us, we can still inject truth uh, from person to person. We can still ask those hard questions. We still have to be critical in our thinking more than ever. And then find also practical ways that we can begin to uh, to safeguard our family, our friends, the people around us. Um, that, 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 you know, th- these are important things that uh, that that I think uh, really in the last three years have forced a lot of people to start to think about. I mean, even connecting with you said, I still feel like there's a attack on skills in general. That I see this all the time, at least for like for where I work, that people will come in. And they'll learn a process, but they won't learn a function of how it works. So they may know the process of how to do something in an exact scenario, but that doesn't mean that if anything deters from that exact scenario, that they're going to be able to problem solve to actually figure out. Because again, I have people constantly come to my work and they'll know the press, the process, but then you ask them why we do this and they have no idea why we do it. And if you don't know why you're doing something and you don't know the process, then if there's any issues that pop up, you don't have the skills in order to be able to get around that problem because you only know the process. So like there's a lot of people that have skills nowadays. Yes. But a lot of those people that have those skills don't know the function behind those skills and why you're doing them in the first place. So, I mean, just a word of wisdom for me, I guess, to the listeners is that if you're learning a skill, don't just learn the process of the skill, but learn the function of the skill so that if any other weird scenarios pop up, uh, you're still able to work around it and truly understand what you're actually doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's really important. You, you've just touched on the danger of expertise. Uh, I'm not against experts, but when experts have a narrow focus and can't get past that, um, then, then, then all of a sudden there's, you know, when all of a sudden, let's say <laughs> things fall apart, that skill set is no longer of value or that skill set unless you can potentially move expertise over to something more practical, it, it's lost, it's gone uh, because you've had such a narrow, narrow focus that you're unable to take, to take your skills 
beyond that into a more of a generalized uh, environment. Definitely agree. Um, so, yeah, having skills, really important. But, but having skills that are, are workable, that are usable, really, really important. And that's honestly one of the best advices I can give people is that as far as like prepping goes for if anything's ever going to eventually hit the fan, uh, the biggest advice is to collect as many skills as possible. I mean, of course, it's always good to have food and different things like that. But beyond just having food, you need to know how to grow that food because, yes, you could have a supply of, you know, 30 pounds of rice or, you know, you could learn how to grow 30 pounds of rice seed. And in turn, now you have a continuous field of rice. So you don't just have a product, but you actually have a means of reproducing that product. And that's the skill that's really needed. Not just harboring all of, all of the like things that you have, but actually like learning how to use those things properly to get the full extent of what you can do with those things. And with that, knowing also beyond, beyond skill sets and, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, Shane. Uh, the, the analogy that you just used, or, or the model you just used, is, is spot on. The other thing that we have to consider is, is as well, and this is also a lesson that came out of COVID, is knowing who you can trust. Oh yeah, <laughs> because that, that's yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's such a basic, basic thing. But honestly, the last three years has, for me, it re- really reinforced that. Who can I trust? Uh, because, uh, you know, I all of a sudden I realized, oh, there's people who I thought I could trust, who I now realize I can't. People who I didn't really know all of a sudden became trustworthy. So you have to be vulnerable as well to, to, to kind of wrestle through, all right, who is it that's on the same page? Who is it that you can trust? Who is it that you can call up? Um, who is it that you know will, will go the extra mile when when all of a sudden everything else looks like it's it's against you? So that's also important. Something else, too, that in terms of a practical thing, I think it's really an important thing, and it's right behind you, and that's books. In this day and age, my goodness, having a library, because we are so dependent on our information technologies, and we have have become dependent on the web, and back to your point earlier about how you could change web pages, it all can just vanish literally with the click of a mouse, the importance of having hard copies and having a good selection of important materials that isn't going to be easily destroyed and, and to have it in multiple libraries. So I've been in a conversation with, with one of my friends in the UK and he's slowly developing a library. Uh, I had a couple of other conversations recently with others that are, that are also, ha- you know, they also have libraries that are also continually developing their library on all kinds of topics in all kinds of fields of studies uh, so that you have access to information that you know is trustworthy and that can't just simply be erased. So the importance of, I guess, analog in a digital world. I mean, that connects in with the whole Klaus Schwab concept of uh, you'll be happy and own nothing. I mean, if you don't have tangible things, then again, the, you can have an ebook, but it can be changed at any point. It can be taken away from you at any point. But if you have a physical copy of a book, that information can never be pulled from you. And same with like anything. If you have like a physical tool, 
it can't be pulled away from you. But if you're, you know, relying on the internet to be able to learn all your skills, uh, the second that, you know, they decide to shut down the internet because they don't want people to have these skills anymore, then essentially you're cut off from all of your skills. Like you need to have it solid on paper. Like if, if you don't know the process for how to do something for your skill, rather than just relying on the fact that, oh, I can just look it up on the internet whenever I happen to need that knowledge again, you know, get like a solid copy of that information so that it can never be taken away from you at that point. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's 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 so crucial. Uh, we kind of laughed and joked a little bit uh, when when all of a sudden you go to a yard sale and you see a box of old popular mechanics, you know the the do it yourself project books and stuff. The red red hardback covers. I used to have a few of those kicking around, and it was always like, oh yeah, look at the cool little gadgets and stuff that you know guys are doing in the workshops. Now I look at that and I'm going. Hmm, those skill sets are even more important today than they probably were then, just simply because of the uh, of the, the the way things can turn on a dime so fast, versus the stability that they had, uh, you know, even just 60, 70 years ago. So having access to that information is absolutely crucial. Having the skill set, having the you know, having those networks of trust. Having the having those books, the information at your fingertips, really, really important. Knowing the lay of the land around you, uh, all of that has 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 real value. Um, and then, I, hey, I have to take it from a Christian point of view, uh, knowing where you stand in terms of your spiritual life, and and who it is that you trust. Do you trust yourself, or is it, or are you going to end up trusting God? Those are all things you still have to wrestle with too. So. Um, there are practical ways of, of, of answering and, and considering some of the information that we've been talking about. Uh, yeah, you know, we are in a culture war. We are certainly in a, a paradigm shift. Um, how do we bring stability in our own lives as, as this is unfolding all around us? I think that's really a, a healthy thing to look at because honestly, uh, it can get pretty dark pretty darn quick because it is dark, understandably so. So we got to be able to find some some solutions, and not necessarily solutions to the bigger picture, but at least solutions at the personal level. Just a quick little uh, side note that I wanted to throw into connecting with books. Uh, a lot of people don't think about this, but collecting dictionaries because ah, yes. the words get changed frequently. So if you're reading something that's from the 1960s, for example, and you have a dictionary that's from the 1960s, you'd be surprised how many definitions of words have changed and the meaning of it can completely change. So it's like, as we progress farther on as a culture, people are going to realize how important it actually is to have dictionaries in order to read certain things from certain periods. Because can you imagine if we had a dictionary that was written at the same time that the Bible was written, how different of an interpretation we would actually have of the Bible knowing exactly how they intended those words to be used at the time. Oh yeah. Dictionaries are, are you're right. Having, having dictionaries that span time periods. I, I have a few as well. Um, really important. Another one, another uh, resource that gets typically tossed in the garbage or, or left in uh, yard sales for 25 cents are almanacs, world almanacs. Mm -hmm. I have a whole stack of them. I'm missing a number of years, but I have a, a pile of them going back to the fifties. Really interesting because you're able to sit and open it up and look at population spreads you can actually do some fascinating research in terms of of the change that has transpired using almanacs 
it's crazy to think that people like you look at reference books like they become outdated but realistically as you progress further on you realize that these reference <laughs> books are needed to understand the, the time <laughs> <laughs> yes consulting yes. an almanac a dictionary all that stuff you can't just like read a book for what it is for face value now you need all these references to understand the lingo from the time periods <laughs> right right exactly <laughs> the, the one thing that i'm still struggling with and, and maybe some of your listeners can give me some advice on this i'd like to know what to do in terms of, of personal communications um I, I mean there's family band radio and and i know there's different options out there but yeah i mean for myself i live in a very rural area and uh communication is one of those one of those things that uh, I'd like to have an alternative besides the, the very lousy, crappy cell coverage I have. And unfortunately, like you were talking about before the show, it seems like the only thing that's going to be universal and usable in uh, rural areas is going to be Starlink. But that's a whole other can of worms as far as like the man behind all of that stuff. <laughs> I know. I know. Exactly. <laughs> like, I feel like that Starlink is going to take on a totally different connection as soon as the Neuralink starts coming into effect. Yeah, it might. It might. I know. Uh, it was kind of weird when, when uh, Elon was was launching his first series of satellites because they were coming overhead in our area as they were in other parts of, of the continent, and all of a sudden you'd see these strings of lights in the sky, and raised piles of questions, uh, and then over the over the course of days and weeks you'd see those strings as they'd repass over except then they'd be elongated and all of a sudden you know instead of satellite after satellite after satellite in the in this, this like this like the string of pearls then it was a little more like one satellite 20 seconds later another satellite another 20 seconds later another satellite uh, it was kind of wild to watch and it you know kind of almost no, i didn't almost it did kind of bug me it, it was like you're messing up my night sky, dude. Mm -hmm. um, you know, <laughs> and that dehumanizes people too. Cause I feel like there, it's, it's a humbling factor to actually be able to look up at the sky and realize like where you really sit as far as like the universe goes. But as soon as you start disconnecting people from having the view of the night sky, then it makes people more so focused on what's right in front of them and not looking at the broader picture of like what reality in the universe could really hold for all of us. So it also kind of like pushes the people away from actually digging into the mysteries of the universe because they're not looking at the universe. They're too concerned with what's right in front of them. And then when they look up at the sky at night, they see only a handful of stars. So it's nothing fascinating to look at. But if you took people back to like a rule, if you took people to a rural area and told them to look up at the sky, somebody that was like somebody from the city, you know, they'd probably have a totally different perspective on the universe at that point. Oh, Cause they've yeah, probably absolutely. never seen the full sky before. Oh yeah, absolutely. And we've had friends who, who visit us from the city who's never really spent time in rural areas and, and you'll, you'll walk outside and, and we have very little, very little light pollution, very little to no light pollution. Um, and then, and the night skies can be just absolutely spectacular. And I mean, just wildly spectacular. And then all of a sudden there's those satellites and you're like, <laughs> dang, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it, I mean, you're right. Uh, there's a lot of folks who, who've never had that experience of be, being able to stand underneath the stars like that and go, uh, wow, uh, this is really incredible. Um, yeah. Uh, it, here we have, of course, Northern Lights and then right, we're right around that time period where we're beginning to have the possibility of seeing not luminous clouds. So that's kind of cool too. When you have, uh, 
massive height or, or really, really high uh, cloud structures that begin to have the, the night glow after the sun is set. Uh, it's a feature that's only found in a certain latitude. That's a pretty cool thing as well. Um, but yeah, the, the night sky is just amazing. And, and all of a sudden, there's, there's Mr. Musk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it blows my mind, man, that I'm pretty sure that majority of people who have lived in their city their entire, their entire life have never seen the Milky Way. <laughs> like that's insane they've only seen pictures <laughs> yes yes <laughs> i can step up my door and see it that's it's yeah i take it for granted <laughs> people don't realize like how disconnected you really get from the spiritual aspect of the universe and the world just off of light pollution like it's insane and even connecting past that too once you entire you can cover the entire globe and like internet you essentially have this vibration frequency that's traveling through people at all times and like who knows what that could be potentially doing to you because we all know that like frequencies and different sounds have the ability to affect the brain in different ways and you know these radio transmissions all these different things that are constantly passing through us all the time like who knows what type of negative effects it could have on your mental or even physically on your body and once the entire planet's covered and there's no escape from that like you're essentially just sitting in this pool of you know uh, microwaves and frequencies that are just constantly always passing through your body with no escape of actually being away from this like electrical future yeah, you know, I I I've th- I have thought of this uh, on a few occasions. I don't have any documentation or any data to, to to really work with, but I have often thought: Is there a correlation between uh, the rise that we have seen in terms of global cancer rates, uh, the corresponding with the amount of of uh, radiation, uh, microwave signals? Uh, you know, uh, we 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 our airwaves are loaded just loaded with signals beyond what we understand um is there some correlation i don't know i've often thought that there may be but it's just simply a a, a guess on my end i mean even looking at like the newer generation and even you know it, it connects in with everybody but especially the younger generation i never see them like without headphones in and all the headphones now work off of Bluetooth and you have it in both of your ears. So essentially you have this frequency that's traveling in between your phone and going through your head for you know, all, all day, essentially. I mean, even if you're not listening to music necessarily, like you see a lot of these like Gen Z kids and stuff, they're, they're just be hanging out in public with their friends, with their headphones in, not even listening to anything. And it's like, you're, you're putting waves straight through the sides of your head all day long. And you're not even thinking about it. Like what, what's the repercussions of that? Yeah, no kidding. And I had never thought of that. Yeah, no doubt, Shane, there, there will be some repercussion. Um, there has to be. And those things it just came be. out in the last couple of years too. So it hasn't even had an adequate amount of time to even see if there is a negative side effect. Right, right. It may be minuscule, but it may not be minuscule. It may, you know, I don't know. That's really interesting. It might even be that knocking you off the top thing. Like I was saying with food, things like that, that it's all stuff that's supposed to lie and sit and wait. And then once you get to about a certain age where your body starts to digress, then because of all of these other things that have been traveling through it, your body might digress at twice as fast of a rate when you get to that point. So, I mean, because intentionally they need people to run the system. They need all of their worker bees, but once they're unable to be a worker bee, then they don't want them to be around. So there's no reason to poison them right off the bat directly where they're going to die right away. They want to do something that's a long-term thing that's going to get rid of them on the back end when they're not useful to them anymore. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, well, hey, in, in Canada here, um, we have our our uh, medical assistance in dying, our MAID program. Uh, so right now, it, it's it's not geared towards being a senior, but it, hey, it, it, it it's going to end up going that way. Right now in, in Canada, if uh, you have a terminal disease, you can get mated. Uh, if you are, uh, if you have depression and are, are feeling pretty down and, and it seems to be, uh, uh, you know, negatively impacting your lifestyle, um, maybe you can get mated. If you can't afford your, to rent your, your, uh, your apartment, um, you can get mated. Good old uh, Matt Groening predicting the future in Futurama. Uh, they have the suicide booths. You know, we're only probably like 10 years away from that in Canada where you can just go up to a telephone booth in public and be like, I'm done. And realistically, yep. instead of people addressing the problem with like depression, for example, like depression is rampant. And rather than, you know, figuring out why is everybody depressed? Everybody's like, all right, I'm just going to take this medicine because it makes me feel better. But maybe you should just sit back and realize that the reason why you're depressed and everybody's depressed is because we're not living the way that people are intended to live. We're pushed into this system that was never intended to be. And in turn, everybody's depressed from it. And rather than addressing the problem, they just fill it up with happy drugs and call it a day. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, that's right. That's right. It, 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 there's, there's a parallel here to Nazi Germany and it's obviously a pre-war parallel because uh, in Nazi Germany, um, they euthanized the very first people to be el eliminated were not the Jews. It was actually Germans as the Germans themselves euthanized the unfit uh, those useless eaters, the, the feeble-minded, uh, you know, th those type of people. So I'm looking at what's happening with MAID, and, and we're, not we're not there, but we're there all at the same time. All it takes is some type of big movement, and then all of a sudden people's minds are going to drastically change because that's kind of yeah. how that stuff worked too, is that it was almost to the – they built up to like a breaking point, and then something happened, and then all of a sudden people's minds – quick flipped instantly. And I feel like we're at that point where all it takes is just a specific piece of information. Everybody's minds are going to flip. I mean, you kind of, you saw it with COVID essentially that everybody yes. went from feeling this way one day to the very next day, their whole entire method of thinking was completely different. And if that was a test run to, for something bigger, like who knows what the next thing is going to be that pops out. And then 90% of the population completely changes their mind on something. And then that's when it's going to become a negative idea. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. Nope. I think you're on to something right there, Shane. Absolutely. Uh, lessons have been learned, and I think lessons have been learned through COVID from both sides. Those who perpetu you know, perpetuated it, those who, who, who made the system, and then those of us who've had to face the system. Talk about a blessing and a curse at the same time is that I feel like there wouldn't be nearly as many people that are aware of the, all of these things happening if it wasn't for COVID and COVID was definitely a negative thing on the aspect of just the world in general. But at the same time though, like people wouldn't be as aware as they are currently if it didn't happen. So it's kind of, it's a catch 22 that, you know, it, it shouldn't have happened, but at the same time though, to a weird extent, it almost kind of like needed to happen. True. It woke up a lot of people. There was yeah, like 99% of the podcasts that are around right now talking about conspiracy stuff all pretty much formed when COVID was going on. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> They're intending to lock everybody in their house so that they'd sit by themselves and, you know, skew in, the, in their own, 
in their own mind. But realistically, what ended up happening is we ended up using their technology against them to start speaking out about it because rather than sitting there and watching Netflix, there was a good portion of people that actually started doing the deep research. And once they started doing the deep research, they really had to get it out there and start talking to people. And then people started realizing how many like-minded individuals there are. People started podcasts, then all the listeners came following with it. And it started, I feel like podcasting in general, as far as like this community goes and the type of topics we're talking about, I feel like it's almost like the start of like a reverse cultural revolution. And if it wasn't for all of this type of stuff happening, podcasters doing what we're doing and having these types of conversations, then there wouldn't have been this push to actually go back on it. Like, I feel like if it wasn't for COVID, it wasn't for all of the people doing this kind of stuff, then there wouldn't have been like the boycott on Bud Light. There wouldn't be this boycott that started to happen with Target because people wouldn't have had a reason to actually sit down and actually figure stuff out. Like they, it totally backfired in their face in that aspect. (laughs) Yep. Exactly. Shane. Exactly. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess with uh, with that, we're running at about two and a half hours, and we could easily go for way more considering we we're talking for two hours before the show. But uh, I guess I'll save that for next time because I would definitely love to have you back on the show. But uh, to leave it on a high note, of course, I always like to do words of wisdom from the guests to the listeners. So, uh, I mean, you've been kind of preaching words of wisdom all night, but if there was a specific words of wisdom that you could uh, bestow upon the listeners, what would it be? Oh, golly. Um I think I would go back to, to what we talked about just a few minutes ago, and, uh, and that is know who it is that you trust. Um, know who it is that you trust. Develop those skills that you need. Become a critical thinker. Uh, put your faith in God, because man will fail you. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> and uh for anybody that enjoyed this conversation of course uh where can they come and find you at and where can they come and find your books at absolutely you can go to gameofgods.ca if you want to read excerpts of my book i poke through the bibliography and and just kind of get a general feel for what it's about uh you can check it out of course on amazon uh the book is titled game of gods the temple of man in the age of reenchantment and then you can go to forcingchange.org which is my old website and i have taken all of my um monthly uh magazines uh nine years worth i've place them all in a a membership section. Um, There is no fee for the membership. It's free. It just simply allows you uh, with your email to to have access to uh, all uh, nine years of of the monthly Forcing Change journal. And there's other materials there as well. There's articles and and other reports. But there you go, forcingchange.org. It's gratis. It's free for you. Um, Use it and uh, check out Game of Gods, uh, my book at gameofgods.ca. And of course, I will include those links down in the show description to make it quick and easy for the listeners. And uh, I appreciate you making the time to come on the show today. I really enjoyed this conversation, even though we got into some dark topics, but I appreciate getting to talk to deep minds like you. And uh, thank you again for making the time to come on today. Absolutely, Shane. Thank you so much. Looking forward to having conversation again. If you guys enjoyed the show, don't forget to share this episode through word of mouth with a friend, or you can also tag them or send them a link, of course, to the episode. And uh, if you guys don't mind taking the time to leave a rating for the show on Spotify or a review for the show on iTunes, uh, of course, I can't really see who gives any of their 
ratings on Spotify. But if you guys do it on iTunes, then I'll read them on the show and give you guys a uh, shout out. And uh, if you guys want to get a hold of me for any reason whatsoever, there's three means of doing so. You guys can shoot me a message on Instagram, which is uh, the social media that I'm the most active on. Uh, I guess you can also probably message me through the Discord. That's another uh, viable option. And uh, you guys can also email me at inquiriesallrealitypodcast at outlook.com. Or you can go to the link tree, fill out the submission form, and that will go directly to my email, of course. Uh, make sure that you check your spam or junk folders. Make sure nothing gets missed because I do respond to every single email that you guys are willing to take the time to send me, of course. Uh, everything that I mentioned, all available under the link tree, which is L-A-N-K-T-R period E slash inquiries of our reality podcast. And with that, I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And I'll catch you on the next one. Have a good night, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.